my fellow historians, welcome back. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea, and this is Valar Reredus, episode five of Game of Thrones. In the last episode, we discussed replacing the non-descriptive chapter titles, Danny 3, Brand 4, even though after a time, those don't mean a lot. And, well, we have done so. Let's hit you with those to start off with. Today, we're doing Daenerys 3, the one where Danny makes Viserys walk, aka the gang hits the Dothraki Sea. Then Brand 4, the one with Old Nan's stories. AKA the gang discusses Brand's saddle. Hmm. Eddard 5, the one with Pycelle and the ponderous tome. AKA the gang listens to the ramblings of a shady maester. John 4? Uh, sorry, I, did you come up with new ones? I have these. No, I have. I'm looking at the Facebook list. Oh. That's where there's two of them each. Yeah, I was, I was looking in the document. <laughs> There's not as many in our episode. I'm document. not on Facebook right now. Okay, well, John 4, the gang meets Sam, a.k.a. the one where John starts leading. Eddard 6, the gang meets Gendry, a.k.a. the one where Ned goes to the armorer. Catelyn 5, the one where she captures Tyrion, a.k.a. the gang hangs at the end of the crossroads. And Sansa 2, the gang goes jousting, a.k.a. the one with Sandor's origin story. You guys can suggest chapter names for these in the future. So if you do so, either in Flick or in the Facebook group or on Patreon, we'll use the best ones and give you credit. So that should be fun. Add a little uh, little humor to our episodes going forward. I'd say that the Danny and Bran chapters perhaps are the most standout this time. And they are pretty often given the way this reread is focused because those are two of the arcs that we're the most interested in and we have the, we don't exactly know where they're going. Whereas, of course, with Kat, well, we don't know what the whole Stoneheart deal is. But Ned, we know where that's going. Um, but still, even with these other chapters, I'm sure as a lot of you saw, you've already read them. There is a lot of amazing stuff in here, a lot of amazing foreshadowing, things that we didn't see before. And, well, let's get right to it. Daenerys III. The Dothraki Sea, Sir Joe Marmont said, as he reigned, in, reigned to a halt beside her on the top of the ridge. That's the first line. In this one, Danny and the Kalsar cover a huge portion of the trip to Vase Dothrak, and she adjusts to a lot of things, from her skin and muscles getting used to riding all day, getting used to being in the Kalsar, to the way Drogo treats her, even to her brother. But almost immediately after adjusting to these things, she starts to take command of them. Her leadership qualities really start to emerge. She rides out front. She doesn't, well, she doesn't command Drogo, but she does start to command respect from him. And certainly from other Dothraki, who she does command, and Jorah. Basically everyone around her, except for her brother. <laughs> Read this quote. I was totally just reading the chat. Mm -hmm. uh, Magister Illyrio had urged him to wait in Mendos, had offered him the hospitality of his manse, but Viserys would have none of it. He would stay with Drogo until the debt had been paid, until he had the crown he had been promised. And if he tries to cheat me, he will learn to his sorrow what it means to wake the dragon. Viserys had vowed, laying a hand on his borrowed sword. Illyrio had blinked at that and wished him good fortune. It's yet another example of Viserys just saying something completely crazy. And early we, earlier we took note that Danny took note of how Illyrio interacted with Viserys. In other words, that she notices that Illyrio doesn't take him fully seriously, which 
leads us to what we now know that he was always a smokescreen, sort of a, a diversion. And then this point, though, I wonder if Illyrio is even worried. Before he kind of grinned or, or had a secret smile that only Danny saw at Viserys being so nutty. But maybe at this point, he's starting to think, this guy's even nuttier than we planned for. The plan to have him invade the Seven Kingdoms, you know, it doesn't, it's not going to work if he's such a weak, raging fool that he can't even live long enough to do that. Varys and Lyra may have expected madness to manifest in him as it did in Ares, but as it did in Ares, it was slower. And, and, and of course, in Ares's time, when he was younger, he was almost promising. Maybe not, maybe not quite promising, but he seemed like a decent dude until things started to go bad. And perhaps they thought the Targaryen coin flip might land in their favor with Viserys. At least they thought maybe it would take longer for him to go nuts, but it didn't. It didn't take long at all. Maybe because he was already that way when he was born. Danny might be the only one in the entire Kalisar who respects Viserys, and that ends probably this chapter, um, or at least it starts happening this chapter. Feeling she'd re- she's wrestled with suspicions that she's had, that she notices that no one else is scared of him. <laughs> it's only me. And she starts to put all that together. She's intelligent, and Jorah gives her a little, a little help moving those thoughts along here. Jorah pulled up his horse and looked at her. Truth now. Would you want to see Viserys sit in a throne? Danny thought about that. He would not be a very good king, would he? There have been worse, but not many. <laughs> yeah, one would be Ares, who father, her father, whom even Jorah didn't serve as he was still a stark bannerman then. Before, I thought this plotting was somewhat standard, as in, well, she'll be the opposite, right? That's Early on, I thought Danny won't go mad, but no, well, (laughs) she may end up being perceived by many as the Mad Queen, whether she actually has a full descent into madness or not. The perception is going to be a big part of it, whether, uh, and the truth will be something else. Those will be two different things we'll have to wrestle with. And so will she. And we'll see about all that when the time comes. Certainly no one's going to compare her to Viserys, because Viserys is largely forgotten. There's not going to be a lot of people who know what he was like. So maybe she'll be compared to her father, but not to her brother. Although maybe she'll be compared to her other brother, Rhaegar, who people did know pretty well. Think about how much it would piss Viserys off to know he was nothing but a footnote in history. <laughs> when they write the reign of yours, my, your sweet reign, my, my sister, <laughs> oh, my sweet reign, your, uh, I said that all wrong. <laughs> anyway, good point. <laughs> so we, we pointed out that in the last chapter of Danny's that there were lots of threes. And that, of course, builds up to her child of three uh, theme that comes later. Now here, there's a little bit of that as well, but maybe one of the specific ones, the mounts to ride comes up here a lot. One to bed, one to dread, and speaking of Rhaegar's son, one to love. She's already taken the one to bed, that's Drogo, and Drogon is the one to dread. This is like a bridge to him. The silver, Her silver horse is the confidence that she feels, it's, it gives her uh, gives her power that she hadn't felt before, gives her freedom. And that's all going to pale in comparison to how riding a dragon's going to feel. But you can see the similar language. The descent was steep and rocky, but Danny rode fearlessly, and the joy and danger of it were a song in her heart. All her life, Viserys had told her she was a princess, but not until she rode her silver had Daenerys Targaryen ever felt like one. Yeah. 
and interpreted with her love of her silver are more dragon dreams. Rather, interspersed with her love of her silver are more dragon dreams. Excuse me. The egg feels warm to her even when she's awake, meaning it's not just something that happens in her dreams. And she notes how similar the dream dragon's coloring is, it's black, to the egg that becomes Drogon. And this gives her strength. It feels to her like rebirth. But it's also, it's also foreboding, given what we know. Check this out. She could hear it singing to her. She opened her arms to the fire, embraced it, let it swallow her whole, let it cleanse her and temper her and scour her clean. She could feel her flesh sear and blacken and slough away, could feel her blood boil and turn to steam, and yet there was no pain. She felt strong and new and fierce. Yeah, at the time, in the way it's written, it, it, it seems like rebirth. And, and it is. It is in a lot of that. But it also has that tinge, if not more than a tinge of madness. I mean, this is the buildup to what becomes voices telling her to jump into the fire. That's a decidedly not sane thought. Or, I mean, just having voices telling you to jump into a fire is not, that's not good. It's just that. In her case, it worked. Her father thought burning himself would result in his rebirth into dragon. She's had other ancestors that had similar dreams. In their case, it didn't work. But in her case, it's gonna. And, well, how do you, fa- how do you figure? If something seems all insane like that, but it actually works, how do you judge that? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> and Ares was wrong, right? He didn't exactly get a chance to do the things she did, but... You're not supposed, it doesn't exactly argue for you to stop listening to the voices in your head when they turn out to be right, you know? (laughs) Like if the voices are telling you to do crazy things, like I need to stop listening to those voices. These voices have led her to, you know, power at least. And along with the notion that there's life in the eggs, well, it's it's even more than that because the chapter ends with us learning that she's pregnant with Rago and she sees this as all this prophecy, what little bit she's been exposed to so far is for him, but we know better. It's for her. Real quick, regarding that uh, quote that I just read, I think that it's really an example of the beautiful writing that there is, and it relates to the whole, you know, theme of three that we were talking about, because it's Hmm. cleanse her and temper her and scour her. Oh, yeah. Sear and blacken and slough. Those are in threes. Strong and new and fierce. Oh, wow. Good catch. That's three threes just right there in that quote. Not all of them are threes, but it's just like a very... uh, it's beautiful. Anyways. It is. It's beautiful and and, and de- deadly and, and strange and uh, really cool. <laughs> you didn't need the fourth. Stick with three. Oops. Rule, rule uh, three I'm ruining it. I'm rule ruining it. It's true in comedy. It's true here. Sansa would be yelling at me for ruining it. Let's let's talk about some world building. There is some fantastic world building in this chapter. This chapter really has it all. This is why I, one of the reasons why I think it's maybe the most important of the seven here, but your mileage may vary whether it's most important or not. It's damn important. They crossed the rolling hills of Norvos, past terraced farms and small villages where the townsfolk watched anxiously from atop white stucco walls. They forded three wide, placid rivers and a fourth that was swift and narrow and treacherous, camped beside a high blue waterfall, skirted the tumbled ruins of a vast dead city where ghosts were said to moan about among blackened marble columns. A fourth river? Why didn't he make it three rivers? (laughs) (laughs) Damn it, he ruined it. He ruined it. So as Danny tours, so do we. These little bits of world building are like caffeine. The first time through the books, there's just too much to take in. I'm too, 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 too busy thinking about the plot and who these characters are and all this. 
there's richness worthy of all the many colors of grass in the Dothraki Sea here, though. And, you know, you can't piece it all together when you don't have all this context. But now, every little bit of that description we can say something about. Those black and marble columns in a vast dead city near rivers, that's a dead giveaway that this was a Roinar city, as we detailed in our Nymeria series. I mean, you got the blackened columns. That's blackened by dragonfire. And indeed, east of Pentos is the Little Roin, the Upper Roin, the Coin, the Darkwash. These are some of the rivers, if not all of them, that they've just passed over. And take a look at, you know, the map. Michael Clarfeld's version of Essos is perfect. If you're looking, watching live, it's right here. It shows these features. You can see those rivers really well. And uh, along with other features, such as what's in this next quote here. They race down Valyrian roads a thousand years old and straight as a Dothraki arrow. For half a moon, they rode through the forest of Kohor, where the leaves made a golden canopy high above them, and the trunks of the trees were as wide as city gates. There were great elk in that wood and spotted tigers and lemurs with silver fur and huge purple eyes, but all fled before the approach of the Kalasar, and Danny got no glimpse of them. So cool. The the first of all, the Valyrian roads. We'll, we'll see those again. Tyrion and the little lemurs, the little Valyrians. They're so cool. I love those guys. I forgot that those were mentioned this early. Yeah, you know? I know. I think they're so cool. I, when they were mentioned in the world of ice and fire, I was like, oh, that's cool. That's a cool little thing they added. I had forgotten that they were actually in A Game of Thrones. Hmm. So we'll take a closer look at the Valyrian roads. When Tyrion takes a close look at them, he actually thinks about how they're made and things like that. So that's many books away, but um, I don't know that the roads are something that we need to discuss now, so we'll do we'll uh, we'll try to be as efficient as we can. But, but yeah, you know, I, yeah, I don't think we heard about those lemurs at, at any point after a Game of Thrones until no. the World of Ice and Fire, which is a long time later, yeah. eighteen years after Game of Thrones. George was still like those lemurs. Let me tie that together. Let me go ahead and close that circle for you. All. Or maybe, <laughs> or it's possible that Elio and Linda were like, I wonder what those little those lemurs, and they asked him. I'm just that curious. might be yeah, because that is apparently one of the things they did was go yeah. through and look for little world building notes yeah, to ask George like, to expand yeah. on. So it yeah. could be that kind of maybe, situation. Yeah. Maybe Linda and Elio are the ones to thank for, for <laughs> closing that circle. So yeah, the World of Ice and Fire called them little Valyrians, which makes sense. They're silver haired and purple eyed, and not only are they unusual in their coloring, but we learn that there's lemurs elsewhere in the world, but they're all really far south. So Thorios and the Summer Isles are the only place we hear of them. So super far away than uh, the forest of Kohor and separated by vast seas in addition to being continents away. So, well, here's where we get really deep. Uh, and, and this is great because we love to talk about, and George loves to talk about how one sentence in one of his books can lead to so much discussion. Here we go. <laughs> in our Gagasos episode, which is a patrons-only episode, we talk about the Valyrians and their so-called flesh pits and blood magic experimentations and all the rumors and facts that we have about engineered species. And that this is even more odd. I mean, all that stuff is even more odd than, than these lemurs, but it might be related. This might mean the lemurs were a product of the Valyrian blood magic. Maybe some Valyrian uh, blood magician was like, hey, I want to, you know, they just showing off their ability to show magic. Uh, George has, has done this before in other series where uh, people get so advanced that they show off with their technology. It's in uh, Dying of the Light is a good example of that. First novel he ever wrote. Not first story, first full-length novel. And uh, so that's, you know, first time I read this book, I didn't take note of those lemurs. Like I said, there were so many other things to think about. Um, all, like Daenerys and the Dothraki, things that were a little more prominent. This time, you know, like I said, that, that, that sentence led us to blood magic, griffins, dragons, the Targaryens with their literal blood 
and how that explains resistance to heat and, and disease and how that goes to dragon riding. And here we are back to also the madness, perhaps. That might be where some of that comes from. Now, it's normal and, you know, because of human genetics, real world genetics, blaming incest for Targaryen madness. But George loves these double meanings, these multiple meanings, these confounding factors. It could be both. Dragon blood and incest could be factors in madness. We don't know. So all that from lemurs named after a dead, well, doomed nation, we'll say, right? (laughs) And well, the little Valyrians might die out too, but their doom is more likely to be ice and winter, not fire and magma, right? Because they're so far in the north. If the long night descends and you can see where the forest of Kohor is, it's to the north of the continent. So if winter strikes Westeros, it could easily strike uh, Essos as well. And that would be the first part of the continent impacted. And that ties us back to this chapter because we have so much life that is present in that forest, as we've seen here. But we also have so much life on the Dothraki Sea, all the many colors of grass that's described, all the, the animals that live there as well. So if winter and or darkness comes to the Dothraki Sea, all that grass just becomes nothing. Past here, there were no hills, no mountains, no trees, nor cities, nor roads. Only the endless grasses, the tall blades rippling like waves when the winds blew. It's so green, she said. Here and now, Sir Joyer agreed. You ought to see it when it blooms, all dark red flowers from horizon to horizon like a sea of blood. Come the dry season and the world turns the color of old bronze. So yeah, what will it look like if it all dies? I'm Like I said, I think it's just going to look like desolation. Just there'll be nothing. Like it said, there's no cities, no roads, no, it's just grass. And if all the grass is gone, then then there's truly nothing. What if? What about ghost grass? Ghost grass also makes, uh, we, we, we get to talk about that. It's a strange concept. I really don't get what the deal is with ghost grass and how it relates to the long night and just what it is in general. It's a really interesting remaining mystery. Maybe it's going to be part of the desolation. Maybe, who knows? We'll see. <laughs> so in general, this suggestion of doom and desolation is hanging over this chapter. Um, and it's not all pointed at the Dothraki Sea, though, is it? It's, uh, there's a, a whopper of a line here that after, right after she starts associating home with King's Landing, and it gets dark. It was King's Landing and the great red keep that Aegon the Conqueror had built. It was Dragonstone where she had been born. In her mind's eye, they burned with a thousand lights, a a fire blazing (laughs) in every window. In her mind's eye, all the doors were red. A fire blazing in every window. Think about that for King's Landing. Oh, a flyer. Yes, a flyer blazing in every window. A a a flyer fly? (laughs) A flyer fly? And some more amazing writing right around the same spot here. This metaphor about power and privilege is really strong here. She rode at the head of the Kalasar with Drogo and his blood riders, so she came to each country fresh and unspoiled. Behind them, the great horde might tear the earth and muddy the rivers and send up clouds of choking dust. But the fields ahead of them were always green and verdant. Yeah, it's true that people often don't see the damage that they cause, especially when you sit at the top of a power structure like this. To see it, you have to look back. And, well, Danny... She can't look back, because if she looks back, she's lost. (sighs) There's some comparisons to be drawn between Danny's early marriage to Drogo and Cersei's early marriage to Robert. Robert would also ignore Cersei all day, would go out drinking and hanging with his friends, and then just kind of come back 
at night to, you know, sleep with her and uh, be very rough about it. And uh, so they both kind of had to deal with that in their own way. Not an easy topic, but um, the parallel is definitely there. And all this, this power, there's lots of questions of what power looks like in here. Uh, with Danny is questioning, you know, her own brother and then Sir Jorah is kind of giving her these leading questions. Much later, we have Varus asking similar questions like, what does power look like? What is it? Uh, Melisandre brings up questions like this as well. And Jorah himself uh, points out some of the dichotomies here. And he himself is realizing that of the two of them, who is the more capable, right? She barefoot with dirt between her toes and oil in her hair. He with his silks and steel. Yeah, but... He sees through it. Danny is immersing her himself herself in Dothraki culture and clothing, but that is uh, empowering her, saving her. And Viserys is refusing to adapt. It's like the old adage of nature: adapt, evolve, or die. And he is not evolving, and he will die. Yeah, so there you go. There's also a little overlap of Ned's way of ruling here that we spoke about last time. Dothraki leaders might ride at the front, but they're always visible out in the open, kind of doing what their subjects do, but kind of in the alpha version of it, I suppose you could say. As with uh, Ned's thinking on dining with different guests uh, to try to bind you know, them all together, the Kalsar is kind of run uh, in, a, in a similar way, a roughly similar way, the way that Drogo is always with his men. And, and it's, it's not just loyalty, but there's, a, there's an element of friendship there and camaraderie. But, of course, it's uh, very exclusive. Uh, they all get to see everything. You know, we talk, they talk about how there's, they even have sex out in the open, things like that. And this is a really interesting comparison to the Baratheon rule, Robert, Joffrey, Tommen. There, the distinction is shown that, especially someone like Cersei, who, you know, who doesn't hardly ever leave the Red Keep. They're isolated from their subjects. Um, especially someone like Joffrey, who really doesn't get it. Uh, even Catelyn, in this, cha- in this chapter we're covering here, there's a lot of things she just doesn't really quite grasp about being a commoner, and it's, a, it's an important recurring theme. All right, so a couple of questions here as we end Danny 3. Um, Sorav wants to know, did Quaith send the Dragon Dreams to Danny? This is a good question. Uh, the origin of the Dragon Dreams is definitely something to be considered. I would guess no, though, that they weren't sent by Quaith because there's been so many dragon dreamers among the Targaryens over so many centuries. And I wouldn't guess that Quaith has just been around sending them all these years. Yep, she has. Yep, <laughs> okay, you fact. heard it here first. It is known. <laughs> and it's, uh, there's, you know, possibly the other Targaryens got dreams sent from somewhere else. But that seems like a stretch that there's just some force out there constantly sending dreams to Targaryens. So I would think, no, I think it's in something with the, the, the blood and maybe there's some magical energy that they're receiving, you know, like satellite dishes can pick up on radio signals, that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, I would guess that's not quite there, but I am wondering, but that doesn't mean Quaith isn't sending other things to her. Uh, and once we get to Quaith, we'll have more to say about that. John Hagee says, I guess because the horses are also food, they don't get names. Good point. The Thraki don't name their horses. And yeah, so often they eat them. That makes a lot of sense. That's a good call. Amy Lantrip says that's a good point. They're important to the Thraki, but not humanized. Yeah, that is also true. And it's it's really fun. 
us uh, going through here and looking for details like that. I pointed out last time how Drogo almost treats Danny like a horse. He's kind to her until she loses her fear, and then he goes back to treating her kind of like uh, like a broken-in animal. And that's not good. But it is what it is, and let's move forward. Brand four, the one with old Nan stories. We meet her, we meet Hodor, and we hear stories of them both and of things much older and colder. Everything moves around him, and he doesn't feel as though he's a part of it, which is foreshadowing for his detachment later. Tyrion, who understands being left out, shows up and helps him feel included again and makes yet another Stark friend. He's been he's starting to be good at that, huh? In the yard below, Rickon ran with the wolves. Indeed, he did. <laughs> this line, the first of the chapter, makes me think of the pack surviving while the lone wolf dies. But again, Bran won't die in the physical sense, but he may die in the sense that he's not really Bran anymore. There's a lot of kind of dichotomy to you keep using that word over and over <laughs> of, of him losing his starkness, yet becoming more of a stark in certain ways. And the old god symbolism remains really strong here as we go from direwolves to crows, then his coma dreams. And now talking to old Nan. It was just a lie, he said bitterly, remembering the crow from his dream. I can't fly. I can't even run. Crows are all liars, old Nan agreed. So must just... mean that old Nan was told. The brand talked about his dream for her to, you know, he says it was just a lie. And she knows kind of has a sense of what he was talking about. I think she slept with a night's watchman. <laughs> Crows are all liars. <laughs> it was just went right over his head. <laughs> But I do wonder about that line. Like, that's kind of a peculiar line. Crows are all liars. A lot of people have used that to indicate that maybe Bloodraven is misleading Bran somehow, which I do think he is misleading Bran. I don't think he's misleading him for a truly dark ulterior motive, but I do think he's misleading him in part because of his nature, meaning not not Bloodraven's nature, but Bran has a very merciful, loving nature, and I don't think he would be willing to do some of the things that are quote-unquote necessary from Blood Raven's perspective, not necessarily from our perspective or my perspective. So I think this touches on that a bit. This Hodor quote? Yeah, Hodor is introduced on screen and we get a very sly way of doing it. No one knew where Hodor had come from, she said. But when he started saying it, they started calling him by it. It was the only word he had. <laughs> no one knew where Hodor had come from. Yep. <laughs> well, now we all know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hold the door. We yeah. know that's what it means now. But <laughs> it starts be, with the, the, the door, way he's introduced is so funny now, huh? The door opened with a bang, and Bran's heart leapt up into his mouth in sudden fear. But it was only Maester Lewin with Hodor looming in the stairway behind him. That's so funny. <laughs> I love it. Bang, and the door open. Hodor was nearly seven feet tall, right? Here's another quote from Ashea. Hodor was nearly seven feet tall. It was, it was hard to believe that he was the same blood as old man. Bran wondered if he would shrivel up as small as his great-grandmother when he was old. It did not seem likely, even if Hodor lived to be a thousand. Lived to be a thousand? That made me think about that for a second. Hmm. But Bran's vision into Dance with Dragon shows us what could be, or what probably is, young man kissing what is very likely Duncan the Tall, which at the time seemed to confirm the long-held theory that Sir Duncan the Tall is the ancestor of Hodor. We haven't seen anything to challenge that. That is still the... Uh, operating theory that we're working off of hodor's only known kin here is old nan um well only known kin from her branch of the family given what i just said 
is so we're clearly supposed to think about this. She's named in several other chapters before appearing on screen, and she continues to be named in a lot of other chapters she doesn't appear in. She was the oldest person in Winterfell for certain, maybe the oldest person in the Seven Kingdoms. Nan had come to the castle as a wet nurse for a Brandon Stark whose mother had died birthing him. Of course, he had yeah. been an older brother of Lord Ricard, Bran's grandfather, or perhaps a younger brother or a brother to Lord Ricard's father. So only one of these suggestions actually fits the family tree that were given in the world of Ice and Fire, and it's the last one. The Brandon Young Nan came to Winterfell to be a net wet nurse for was a brother to Lord Ricard's father. Lord Ricard's father was Lord Edwile, and he had a half-brother born before him whose mother died. So that fits all the, the, all the little details of that story. Uh, and that, it also fits the idea that she died in childbed because, uh, you know, Lord Edwile had a half-brother. And so that all works. So this Brandon also clearly did not live a long life, which is why Edwile, Bran's great-grandfather, inherited Winterfell when their father, Lord Willem, was slain by wildlings at the Battle of Long Lake some 72 years before this scene. As for his thought that she's the oldest person in the Seven Kingdoms, well, Melisandre probably has her beat, though she hasn't been in Westeros very long by this point. Walder Frey and Aemon are two other very old ones, while the ghost of Highheart and Bloodraven... Well, depending on whether you still classify them as persons, if you don't think Bloodraven counts as a person, then, well, you might have to say Bran won't eventually either. That's too bad. Old Nan came to wet nurse for A. Brandon, and she goes right for a story about A. Brandon from long ago. I could tell you the story about Brandon the Builder, Old Nan said. That was always your favorite. <laughs> thousands and thousands of years ago, Brandon the Builder had raised Winterfell, and some said the Wall. Bran knew the story, but it had never been his favorite. Maybe one of the other Brandons had liked that story. Sometimes Nan would talk to him as if he were her Brandon, the baby she had nursed all those years ago. And sometimes she confused him with his uncle Brandon, who was killed by the Mad King before Bran was even born. She had lived so long, Mother had told him once, that all the Brandon Starks had become one person in her head. Well, if that isn't, where would foreshadowing or the Weirwood network in a nutshell, then, well, I don't know what is. That's seeing all these Brandons throughout history will be something that Brand himself can be doing uh, a few books from now. And her, the association of her accumulated wisdom, well, the Weirwood net's been doing that for a lot longer. It's a similar kind of concept. George weaves his story such that old Nan is weaving stories that resonate with her own story. It's stories upon stories upon stories. How many stories are we dealing with at once? Well, the reader lives a thousand lives, so a thousand? I don't know, a lot. <laughs> her stories continue to resonate throughout the POV characters' memories, too. In particular, Bran and Arya think of her several more times in their chapters, even in Feast and Dance. And John thinks of her as well. Even Theon thinks of her. They may think of her with increasing frequency in latter books as more of her stories continue to come alive. The more they come real, then the more people are like, whoa, old Nan was telling the truth, I guess. Damn. She tells uh, a wide variety of these stories to the uh, various young characters in Winterfell who have lived there over the years, whether they're young now or not. But this is the one time we get it up close and personal. In that darkness, the others came for the first time, she said as her needles went click, click, click. 
They were cold things, dead things that hated iron and fire and the touch of the sun and every creature with hot blood in its veins. They swept over holdfasts and cities and kingdoms, felled heroes and armies by the score, riding their pale dead horses and leading hosts of the slain. All the, me- all the swords of men could not stay their advance, and even maidens and suckling babes found no pity in them. They hunted the maids through frozen forests and fed their dead servants on the flesh of human children. So now when we consider the others, we're armed with the knowledge that they are likely a creation of the children, made to fight back against the first men who were overwhelming them. Iron and fire were two of the first men's biggest weapons, so it makes sense that the others, creatures of cold and darkness, have certain vulnerabilities to heat and sun and forged metals too, but maybe not uh, maybe not iron, but flaring steel and you know, other things like that. These traits also describe the children. They live in dark caves and they don't make forged weapons and they stay away from the sun. And it's, there's a lot in common there. They live in the darkness of those caves, etc. So now these were the days before the Andals came and long before the women fled across the narrow sea from the cities of the Rhoyne and the hundred kingdoms of those times were the kingdoms of the first men who had taken these lands from the children of the forest. Yet here and there in the fastness of the woods, the children still lived in their wooden cities and hollow hills and the faces in the trees kept watch. Nice reminder of how many of these seeds were planted or even partly grown so early in the story. And that I love the, the reference to things like the wooden cities and hollow hills. Well, we haven't seen evidence of the wooden cities, but the hollow hills, that's exactly what the spot where the Brotherhood Without Banner sets up with Beric sitting on a weirwood throne looking all like Blood Raven with his one eye and black cloak and bony, you know, visage and all that. So as cold and de- as so as cold and death filled the earth, the last hero determined to seek out the children in the hopes that their ancient magics could win back what the armies of men had lost. He set out into the dead lands with a sword, a horse, a dog, and a dozen companions. For years he searched until he despaired of ever finding the children of the forest in their secret cities. One by one, his friends died, and his horse, and finally even his dog, and his sword froze so hard, the blade snapped when he tried to use it. Yeah, I wonder about the snapping. Blade snapping isn't usually how that's described. Ned does describe snapping needle over his leg, but that's not usually how blades are described as breaking. And so I wonder if, if, if he's kind of describing this parts of this story that sound like John and parts of it that sound like Bran. And, well, Secret Cities, we kind of maybe have seen some of that. Like I talked about the sword, the horse, the dog. I mean, the dog could be one of the dire wolves. The horse, I don't know where that comes from. Neither, I don't know if John's going to ride a horse north. Bran doesn't do much riding after uh, his saddle. He doesn't take his special saddle north with him. So some of this does it. Some of these details don't quite line up, but we know this is, this, it's still too strong of a, of a message about the last hero for us to ignore it or for us to think that it's faux shadowing. It's definitely not faux shadowing, but I think maybe some of these details are a little different than maybe the way it's, it's come forward now. But I'll, we can write that off as just, this is a thousands of year old story that has changed over time. You know, the details shift a little bit. And uh, But there's more to it than this. The quote continues. And the other smelled the hot blood in him and came silent on his trail, stalking him with packs of pale white spiders, big as hounds. <laughs> big as hounds, you say. One of the favorite quotes from the early book here, early uh, Game of Thrones. Lovely quote. <laughs> but that's something we never saw. We didn't see that on TV, unless it's a, a metaphor we somehow didn't grasp, but I doubt that. 
And so that's something to look forward to, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, pale white spiders, big as hounds, packs of them, I, I not don't just look, a couple. I don't necessarily right? look forward to that. I have to say. <laughs> but here's an interesting thing: they smelled the hot blood in him. Hmm. Can the undead smell cold hands or undead John or even Melisandre fire white stuff? I don't know about that. That's that's interesting. You wonder mm. if that will it's it's been a theory that John's undeath will allow him to face the extreme cold, you know, like he can go north because he's no longer human and he won't freeze to death. Well, this fits in with that concept. If he no longer has hot blood in him, then well, we could be onto something with that. My stories? No, my little lord, not mine. The stories are before me and after me, before you, too. That is such a meta line, isn't it? I mean, that is so true in the real world. Stories are. They are. Whether we whether they're true, whether they're uh, you know, they don't belong to people. They're just our stories affect human life. They we we do live by them in many ways. And a lot of truth in that one. At the end of this chapter, Yorin reminds us that the stories aren't necessarily coming true. In a sense, they've always been true. It's a different way to look at it. Down here might be that's true, Maester, Yorin said. But up past the wall, who's to say? Up there, a man can't always tell what's alive and what's dead. Now, in this conversation, they're talking about the children of the forest dying out. But of course, what's alive and what's dead has a lot of other meanings. The others, the whites, cold hands, Jon Snow again. So a lot of talk of undeath. And uh, the the nature of the evil menace is being said here. And indeed, he's right, though. It can be hard to tell what's alive and what's dead. And in, and in what form? Is it completely dead? Half dead? Yeah. A lot more of that to come. So let's talk about some more foe and foe shadowing in this chapter, because there is a good bit. You Starks are hard to kill. Yeah, John says that to Rob in uh, an earlier chapter. And here, Tyrion says it to him. So that line comes up twice. The thing about being hard to kill, though, is it implies people want to kill you. And that obviously does catch up with Rob eventually. He was hard to kill, but, you know, it did happen eventually. Rob is also sitting on the Stark high seat with his sword across his lap, which it's meant to show that Tyrion is unwelcome. It's a gesture of, you're not welcome here, which even Bran understands. But it's also the exact posture taken by the dead stone kings down in the crypts. Rob is assuming the position that he will find himself in in two more books once he's killed. Sad. The subject of Benjen, another hard-to-kill individual, is raised again, ha, pun intended, and Rob yells out that he's not dead. Well, that might be a matter of philosophy there, Rob. <laughs> undead, not dead, what, is, <laughs> what does that mean? Assuming he's even undead. We, the show surely cut corners on the Benjen plot line, but... Uh, All Bran could think of was old man's story of the others and the last hero, hounded through the white woods by dead men and spiders big as hounds. (laughs) Spiders big as hounds. (laughs) He was afraid for a moment until he remembered how that story ended. The children will help him, he blurted. The children of the forest. Well, HBO did at least go that route. Not the spiders as big as hounds, damn it. But the children will help him part. The children did help him. It was very shallowly explained. It was like two lines of dialogue. Dragon glass, yada, yada. That was what they said, you know. (laughs) But That is what they said. Yeah, Benjamin was like, oh, Yada, yada, dragon glass, y'all. Yeah. Don't worry about it. It works. So I imagine we're going to get a little more detail, maybe a lot more detail. The mechanism will be a little more complicated. But uh, so that's something to look forward to. I'm not actually throwing shade at the show for not going into more detail there. I kind of like that we get that mystery left uh, for us for later. 
Another relevant mechanism, speaking of magical mechanisms, this one's not magical, although it's going to be, <laughs> it's foreshadowing for use on a magical beast, and that is the saddle. This has long been seen as foreshadowing for Tyrion to design dragon saddles, meaning this this bit for Bran. Um, if if that doesn't happen, the only other way they could do saddles is to maybe, you know, some old books that have Valyrian's dragon saddle design in them, I don't know. <laughs> but I think Tyrion is much more likely to be the guess for that. And on the human level here, get moving aside the magic, this is just a great gesture. This is a legitimate, real gesture of compassion. And from Tyrion's POV later, there's never any hint that this was ulterior motive. He's not like, I'm going to befriend those Starks so I can get them. You know, it's just, he's just, it's, it's legitimate. He's just being friendly. The North remembers, and Bran will remember, just like Jon will. All these characters, even Rob will remember uh, that Tyrion has befriended Starks you know he doesn't win Rob over but you know this uh, this hostility that he was showing Tyrion melts away into this kind of mix of gratitude and shame and well, confusion really it leads to a scene that feels a bit incongruous really uh the normally the direwolves match their owner's moods right that's that's very typical it's even true for real dogs uh, but after relaxing you would think that Grey Wind would relax too Bran feels grateful internally and Summer would feel that Rickon's always the wild card, but still, all three of the direwolves menace Tyrion. So, if you're puzzled by that, as Rob was, well, I do believe it's definitely foreshadowing. The 1993 outline called for Tyrion to eventually besiege and burn Winterfell. So, this is them uh, being mad at him in advance, I guess. Uh, Of course, that does still happen, but it's, it's not Tyrion who does that. So, I suggest being on the lookout for hints that it'll be Ramsay Snow. We know that's gonna happen. But maybe there's some hints foreshadowing before that we didn't catch the last time around. And of course, Ramsey doesn't actually besiege Winterfell. He uses guile. That said, we still expect a siege at Winterfell, but uh, it's not the one we saw on TV. I think it'll be, and a lot of people agree with this theory, that it's going to be Stannis besieged at Winterfell by the dead after he defeats some of or all of the Boltons. And if it's not him, then, well... Someone's getting besieged in Winterfell by the dead. I'm pretty sure that I, I would I'd bet on that one. Interestingly, Shaggy's black fur and green eyes are mentioned and brand notes. Tyrion's one green and one black eye. I don't really see a connection here. Shaggy's eyes are said to be like green fire and Tyrion does make use of wildfire later. But I, yeah, that feels just like a coincidence to me. However, it is interesting. The green fire of, of Shaggy's eyes that comes up a few times and I don't ever really know what that meant other than it being really evocative and descriptive. But here's another quote to consider. Mother will be home soon. Maybe we can ride out to meet her when she comes. Wouldn't that surprise her to see you a horse? Even in the dark room, Bran could feel his brother's smile. And afterward, we'll ride north to see the wall. We won't even tell John we're coming. We'll just be there one day, you and me. It will be an adventure. Now, unlike some of the other foreshadowing that leads you astray, this one just seems like innocent hope. But it is foreshadowing. Recall that the story originally did indeed have Catelyn, Bran, and Arya flee north to the Wall after the war between the Starks and Lannisters goes badly. And then they flee beyond that even. But even in the original plan, Rob was not going to get that far. Rob was going to die in battle in the original plan. Instead, he's killed outside of battle. But either way, it's in terms of this part of the story, this piece of foreshadowing, uh, foreshadowing rather, it uh, ends up being about the same. 
Uh, Joe Buckley notes that he's reading Storm of Swords at the moment, and he reread this branch chapter the same day, where uh, and it has Hoster's death where he's at. And Rob is in full-blown king mode by then, which is an interesting comparison to him, you know, still struggling to deal with it early on here. And uh, it's not really that big a difference, though, in terms of his uh, his age and disposition. It's just, just the world forces him to be uh, to grow up really quickly. And just like Sansa lost her starkness when she lost Lady at the beginning of this chapter, we talked about how Bran is losing some of that too. He can't play with the wolves. He still has a wolf. So it's there, but he's detached in, in an interesting way. So it's a subtle way of him losing his starkness while still being among the Starks. Pretty clever. And interestingly, it's Tyrion who has a huge part in pulling Bran back into the real world that in, in showing him how he can still be a part of it in ways after it was Jamie who tried to push him out of it. Nice little bit of uh, irony uh, detected by Joe Buckley there. A couple of questions from Brand Q at Brand 4 before we move on to the next one. Old Nan not only tells great stories in Westeros, but she gave the real world a phrase with which to throw shade. So uh, any of y'all out there, have anyone ever used the phrase, oh, my sweet summer child, to somebody else as like a bless your heart or uh, <laughs> something like that, a way to like gently talk down to someone? Has anyone ever said that to someone or had it said to you? There's your question. <laughs> Never said to me. I'm <laughs> but, no sweet summer child. I'm a sour winter child. <laughs> <laughs> bitter i should have said bitter winter child bitter yeah there we go that's me george bitter r. Martin. winter adult sweet summer child there we go that's perfect good. okay that's better george r. r martin wrote a story called bitter blooms that has blue roses and an endless winter in it in a sci-fi setting mm-hmm. yeah, huh. yeah. Mm-hmm. uh so web Nuc- jerome I'm sorry. that makes me think nuclear winter child <laughs> nuclear winter child yeah <laughs> Webb Jerome from Facebook wonders if the I know a story about a crow line that he refuses to hear would have been about Blood Raven, meaning he refused to hear that story. I wonder if uh, that's the crow she was referring to. She would have been aware of him. He may have even been to Winterfell because he was Lord Commander. And, you know, the Lord Commanders sometimes do business with the Starks. And maybe he just came to uh, uh, visit. Many people took note of how Hodor placed Bran in the high seat of the Starks. Yeah, that's that's very telling, and we're going to see him there again when Rob goes south as Bran is the heir and sits as the Prince of Winterfell. Tree Girl on Flick points out that Bran is the one with the presence of mind to call off the wolves, not Rob, and he is the one comforting Rob later in the darkness when they're hanging out um, in bed later, which sounds kind of funny, but <laughs> it's not. But it's not Rob comforting him. I mean, Rob is sort of comforting Bran, but but the gesture of holding hands and, and Bran notices that Rob is crying, you know. It's inter- it's still notable writing, even though Rob is the one with all this pressure on him. But uh, Bran is the one kind of dealing with it in, almost in a better way. Stefan B., uh, who is German, points out that in his German audio book, Hodor is a, uh, like a lot of German words, a, a two words pushed together, halt and tour, which haltur is how they say Hodor. And halt means hold, and tour means door. So it's almost like they made his name hold door. It's awesome. That's yeah. such a cool catch. I really love that. <sighs> yes, super cool. And I, I don't have an answer. He wants to know if we know anything about that, and I don't. But... No, I would be very curious if you read um, A Game of Thrones in another language. Tell us what Hodor's name is in your language. And I, I'd be curious if there are any others where it effectively means hold the door. 
I kind of doubt it. Um, but maybe. It's pretty know. cool. It's a good catch. That's really neat. I did this this language stuff. There's a lot of interesting clues that may or may not be intentional because George is definitely aware of some of these other words and how they're used. Yeah, but sometimes he d- doesn't seem to be. Yeah. There's some translations where they just seem like bad, yes. obviously. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. For the, you know, eagly, the eagle, you know, <laughs> like that sort of thing. That's still one of my favorites. I don't know. So That's a good one. So also, Christina Minoli points out that going with our other discussions, I thought the description of Summer was interesting. He was silver and smoke, which she points out how similar that is to gray mist which is our you know sign that blood raven is is watching yeah, <laughs> and, I don't, and i don't know if it's blood raven or at least just uh he led the dire wolves to them well, maybe you know more but... like i i consider it to maybe extend to the idea of uh a green seer you know of someone in the werewolf tree like i i could see it maybe happening if bran was watching someone, yeah is my point she also points out the line that he Brand thinks of Summer as having with eyes of yellow gold that saw all there was to see, which mm-hmm. is that's uh, thinking about the Weirwood Network and seeing everything through the trees and Blood Raven. And Brand himself. Yeah, just it fits along that. Yeah, that's really neat. Nina Friel says, I don't understand why Old Nan would be described as a young girl if she was brought to Winterfell as a wet nurse. Amy Lantrop says, Nan could have had her first kid young and been a 15 year old wet nurse. That is possible. Yeah, I guess maybe this is, might just be lack of knowledge by the POV character, just assuming young girl. Uh, maybe they just, it just might be a loose language there. Yeah. But it's uh, a good good thing to, uh, good catch there, regardless. Nina also shared a clarification, um, additional information oh, on ages. ages. Yeah. yeah, on ages. For example, Walter Frey is 90 by the end of A Game of Thrones. And uh, he's... 91 at a certain point let's see by the end of where we are in the books 92 years old okay so but there's uh eric ironmaker who's 88 and an old nan is of course not quite known that's true yeah we don't actually know how old she is so we have these the ages of some of these other characters but old nan's age is is not known that's more common for commoners so uh, yeah alder frey is the oldest person we know yeah and eric ironmaker it would be next right on of people who aren't aided by magic i assume yeah caveat there (laughs) you're not counting people like potentially ghost ghost of a high heart right melisandre blood raven exactly anyways and did we and we know and aemon was 102 when he died is that right I think, it, yeah, I think that so, is what it was. So he would be 100 around here, I think, if I remember. I'm pretty sure he was born in 198. I think that, I think I remember that specifically. Anyway, we can have someone can look that up. Well, let's move on to Eddard 5, the one with Pycelle and the ponderous tome and all that. Ned speaks to Pycelle about John Aaron's death. Here's the phrase, the seed is strong. Talks to Arya about Bran's future and her own. I am sorry for that. This is why I shouldn't get distracted with the chat. <laughs> well, chat is fun and distracting. I can't blame you. Lord Aaron's death was a great sadness for all of us, my lord, Grand Maester Pycelle said. Yeah, and so begins Pycelle's just tiresome ramblings. But within these tiresome, like, over-the-top kind of, oh, I'm so open and honest, there's a lot to be learned, a lot to glean, and a lot to see about him, especially if we compare it to what we know about him later, meaning how he deals with Tyrion, which is a lot different. He's, he's a lot more clever and combative with Tyrion, where he's just very deferential to Ned. But we know in both cases, he's not being entirely forthright, even though here in this chapter, he seems extremely forthright. In fact, Nina makes the pun that he reads like an open book, pun intended, given the Book of Lineages. Good one. 
Next, next quote here. Yeah. To be sure, King Makar's summer was hotter than this one and near as long. There were fools, even in the citadel, who took that to mean that the great summer had come at last, the summer that never ends. But in the seventh year, it broke suddenly, and we had a short autumn and a terrible long winter. This is similar to warnings we're seeing elsewhere in these early chapters. Gior Mormont's one who makes it, and in fact, Bran's first chapter when they're introducing his age, it says he's nine and it's the seventh year of winter. And it's like, whoa, this, I mean, summer rather, seventh year of summer, you know, in a first chapter, like, what the heck is that all about? And Ned doesn't take much note of any of this because it's the house words of his house. Like, I mean, started, he doesn't need to be told winter is coming. I like that King Makar is mentioned here just after these connections we discussed with Duncan the Tall. Makar was fathered Egg and the one who gave permission for Egg to become Sir Duncan's squire. Egg, a.k.a. Aegon V, gets name-dropped not long after. Also named here is Grand Maester Ethelmure, noted back in Tyrion's first chapter. Ned also thinks of Old Nan himself. You know, we were just talking about how people think of Old Nan all the time, and here it is happening right away. And he thinks of how she's the one who taught him the proverb, dark wings, dark words. As Pycelle rambles, being largely unhelpful to Ned, but pretty helpful to the reader, if we're being, uh, if we're kind of parsing that here, he's extremely polite and he's like a, as obsequious as Varus almost, but in a different way. You, you picture if you're watching TV or a movie and this were happening, it would just be this exposition info dump that would be very helpful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you would yeah. be like, yeah, 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 already. That was clunky. <laughs> Picel's words are like the milk Ned is served. Too sweet and not satisfying. He tells Ned he sent Maester Coleman away to help John because, um, you know, Maester Coleman's a young guy. And he doesn't understand the frailties of older men like I do because I'm an old man. But later, he actually flat out admits to Tyrion that he didn't want Coleman to succeed. He wanted John Aaron to die. He didn't want Coleman to save his life. But this is interesting because Pycelle isn't ordered to do this. As far as we know, no one ever told him to do this. No one, Cersei didn't say, hey, you know, tell these lies. Tywin certainly didn't. He's just helping the Lannisters because that's just what he does. He's a Lannister loyalist he's kind of a fanboy that's why people call him a fanboy because of the Lannisters because it's not like they've they're not doing a lot for him he's just kind of giving his loyalty because he thinks they're he likes Tywin I think it's mostly because he likes Tywin and, and he's Tywin's gonna change little. his name to Tycell <laughs> good one got me <laughs> that was not in the script <laughs> Pycell ponderously names all the kings he's served to reach the conclusion that John Aaron's sickness was nothing special, even though the description he gives sounds suspicious. He himself says it's sudden. And Pycelle, but he says, I have all this experience, and his sickness was no different than so many others, even though the description is like, that doesn't sound normal at all. And we, and we know John was poisoned, so we know he's lying or at least obfuscating. And even Robert, who, you know, doesn't have the medical training Pycelle has, gives a different take uh, back in Eddard 1. Robert shook his head. I have never seen a man sicken so quickly. Yeah. Pycelle tells Ned John had been burdened for a while, melancholy and tired, kind of kind of like kind of sell the line that he was distracted, that lots of things were going on in his life, which is somewhat true. But then Robert in that same scene with Ned said this. 
We gave attorney on my son's name day. If you had seen John then, you would have sworn he would live forever. A fortnight later, he was dead. So it's tough to see the truth because Picel is not honest, but Robert tends to be oblivious. So you can't necessarily take Robert's takes as gospel either. He may not have noticed. He may not have seen some of these things that were happening. But we do know for sure Picel was on the trail of Cersei and Jamie's incest. And that's certainly the secret he seems to be wanting to protect, even though, like I said, there's no indication Cersei and Jamie or Tywin or anyone, of course, Tywin is kind of in the dark on that one too, uh, asked him or told him to keep that secret. So, yeah, he doesn't want Ned to find out. So next up we have uh, Ned encountering Arya as he's walking uh, back to his rooms and they talk about Bran and he thinks about how a while back he and the girls went to the Godswood to give thanks, keeping a vigil all night long. Yet someday he might, yet someday he may be the lord of a great holdfast and sit on the king's council. He might raise castles like Brandon the Builder or sail a ship across the Sunset Sea. He says it about Bran re- regarding sailing a ship across the Sunset Sea, but Arya is the one who uh, seems to be the likely sailor, certainly out of those two. And across the Sunset Sea is exactly right. That's exactly yeah. what we see. It's in the very show. interesting because obviously there's a large group of people who don't think that is where Arya's story will end. Yeah. There's a large group of people, I think ourselves included, they're like, I don't know. That could be real or not. We really. It's I, a strange line in general, yeah, just for Ned to throw that out there. Like, Yeah, I mean, it, it makes some sense to me because there are multiple Brandons who do those things. Yeah. You know, there's Brandon the Builder, and then there's Brandon the Shipwright. Yeah. So for Ned to have an association when when contemplating Bran's future, he would think about those two. That's true, like, because Bran thought about those characters because he went, you know, he was taught them because their faces are down in the crypt, so Ned would have been educated the yeah. exact same way. Yeah, so you just, you, yeah. have, you, you know, it might have that association uh of course yeah. when when you see sail a ship across the sunset sea you might be like that's random yeah but we do know about brandon the shipwright yeah who did that who it, tried to do that so and again we have brandon the builder mentioned here which is cool like twice in just a short period of time we have within two chapters and uh, this shows just how often some of these chapters are tying together even when they're in completely different locations completely different subjects he george finds a way to tie these things together and the chapter ends with something that's a theme of this chapter and several chapters around here, which is Ned being led by the nose by Littlefinger. Uh, in this case, Ned gives is given a lesson on how anyone could be a spy, which we is, is useful for first-time readers. It's something that we don't really need to hear now, but there's still something of note here. Let me just say the first two words here are words you never want to hear ever. It's such a funny line. In, in any context other than this. Okay. <laughs> Littlefinger fingered his small pointed beard <laughs> yeah little finger fingered his small pointed beard. uh you are slow to learn lord edard distrusting me was the wisest thing you've done since you climbed down off your horse yeah i think it may have been emmett booth and maybe others before who pointed out that little finger in this scene and some other ones is almost the literal mustache twirling villain here except it's his beard instead of his mustache he's the beard stroking <laughs> the beard fingering villain i don't like i'm just picturing I, I, we need sean here to see how you finger a beard right 
Well, there's beards of many shapes in this one, right? Picel has the long, flowing yeah. beard that he's stroking while he's talking to Ned. I, uh, yeah, whereas he's got a pointed one. So, like, I guess finger. <laughs> anyways, yes. They're both lying to d- in different ways. It's all about the, the beard tells you the type of lies. <laughs> now, Picel and Varys all have different reasons uh, for lying to Ned and, and Littlefinger, too. Neither want Ned to continue down this path that will put Stark versus Lannister. Meaning, Picel doesn't want that uh, at all. Varus wants it, but he wants it later. Littlefinger's all about this chaos and right now. And even Varus wonders what the heck he's all about. But that's part of Littlefinger's game. Do, do chaotic, strange things that don't seem to benefit you to throw your enemies off. As a you know, former professional poker player, I agree with that strategy. If you do things that don't, you know, it's a really good way to throw people off. If they're constantly watching you, they're like, well, what is, how does this fit into his scheme? It doesn't. It's specifically to throw off people who are watching. Now, we're not long from Ned finding himself thinking constantly of his old ghosts. We're almost to the point where almost everything that happens to Ned reminds him of the Tower of Joy or the fallout from the Tower of Joy or the things that happened just before the Tower of Joy, like arguments with Robert over killing the Targaryens and things like that. But right now, he's already chasing phantoms. So he's chasing phantoms, and later he's thinking of his old ghosts. Very much a big part of, of Ned's arc is how much his present is living in the past even when he's not even realizing it <clears throat> all right couple of notes from joe buckley as we touched on a little bit he brings up this point in a different regard there's a lot of picel versus varus vibes in this chapter the tendrils of this stretch both backward and forward meaning back to the sack of king's landing when they fell on opposite sides of whether to open the gates to tywin remember picel was like don't do it and Varus is like, do it. For That's one of the few times that Picel was the man to listen to. And forward, where, you know, the dance epilogue, where Varus actually kills Picel. <laughs> so, yeah. So the Grand Maester is wary of Varus, uh, and he does it in an awkward way. He's like, you know, that he, he brings up the wrong problems with Varus. He's like, you know, he's a eunuch, right? You know, <laughs> Ned's like, so? Everybody knows that. But the bottom line of Maester Picel being wary of Varus turns out to be 100% accurate. And it's also, it's not just because Varus is dangerous, but because Varus, frankly, is better at playing the game of Thrones than Picel is. Uh, Picel is. Wait, wait, wait. You're, <laughs> know, big, you're telling me. Big, cl- big news there. Picel is not as good as Varus? <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Jury's out on that one. Maybe, maybe I went too far with that one. Huh? Yeah, I'm okay. sh- I, yeah. So we, we sometimes like to hold Ned up as a figure to be, you know, criticized and also as one to be upheld as a noble figure, as, a, as someone who was a, a step ahead of so many other parents, if not several steps ahead of so many other parents in Westeros. And you, 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 sometimes you think you kind of roll your eyes at how he just doesn't seem to get Arya, but he's still, a, you know, a good dad despite that. And you, and, and, and you compare him to other people. He looks amazing. Like, for example, would Tywin have ever sat down with Cersei to explain that her brother Jamie could have a sword but not her the way that uh, Ned just did? I don't think so. And we know that this happened. Cersei in her POV is like, I should have had the sword. She just, she constantly she, resents. She, she did get Jamie's sword, though. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> good point. Good point. <laughs> it's in her. It's, it's sheathed and unsheathed. Sheathed and unsheathed. <laughs> 
Yes, thank you, Aziz. We got the joke. We got, you got the joke. You did not have to go far. Why make? <laughs> why add all that graphicness there, Aziz? Talk about over the top. <laughs> Oversweetened milk. <laughs> all right, some Q&A for Edard 5. Kiara on Patreon points out that when points out this quote from when Ned is remembering the vigil where he and his daughters spent the night in the Godswood giving thanks for Bran waking up. And the quote is, when the dawn broke over the city, the dark red blooms of dragon's breath surrounded the girls where they lay, which is one of many possible or definite foreshadowing for King's Landing burning in uh, later. Of course, we've got this one. We've got the one in Danny's chapter, uh, or two of them at least, and uh, several others that I'm forgetting at the moment. Uh, a really good catch by Nina with regards to things that uh, John Aaron was doing that show his interest in genetics of all the things listed off is this quote, the Lord had taken a great interest in the breeding of hunting hounds. Ah, see that quote went right by me every single time I read it. And, but Nina's point here is that he was breeding hounds to see like how they pass traits on to the puppies to kind of get more evidence for what's happening with uh, Robert's bastards. So that's really, that's a really good catch. I like that a lot. I wonder what he, Made with all the hounds. Yeah, where are those hounds now? <laughs> where are these black of hair, blue of eye hounds? <laughs> Abram Gabeyu says, this is, uh, there is George's beard stick stroking as well. Maybe it's an instrument. That's true. George does stroke his beard in real life. He does it. He does it all the time. That is a good point. Hmm. I did not think of that. Good catch from Abram there. Minge Forever says, I was late, so sorry for a throwback, but, all, but the way all Brandons merge in old Nan's mind reminds me of the stories of the Age of Heroes with lords ruling for hundreds of years, i.e. having same-named heirs. Okay, yeah, so that is, that is a, a question relevant to Brand 4, not Eddard 5, but still, that's a good point. Uh, we talk about how the Age of Heroes, and, and of not just the Age of Heroes, but stories from the Far East, like the, the Pearl Emperor and the, the different gemstone emperors, basically, that whole concept of they rule for hundreds of years. It doesn't make sense. But if you think of those as dynasties or as ruling houses that are merged into one over thousands of years in the, in the telling of those stories, that's a thing that really happens yeah, and in there's the real just, world. Yeah, name after name. Uttred, son of Uttred, son of Uttred, son, <laughs> son of Uttred, yes. <laughs> Which is a real character, not, uh, yes, that's the last kingdom, but it's based off of a real uh, series of Uttreds of Bamberg Castle. And Bebenberg was the original name. <laughs> yep, all real, folks. Let's move to John 4. The gang meets Sam. John was showing Daron how best to deliver a side stroke when the new recruit <laughs> entered the practice yard. The I sword keep strokes, a yeah. Or a straight voice. Uh, Man, the, the sexual euphemisms in this episode are off the charts. <laughs> so John and the other new recruits meet Sam and protect him from Alistair and the brothers who want to hurt him. John tells Sam about his Winterfell dreams, and Ghost is, again, a very good boy. <laughs> this section's called a thorny issue, and yes, that is a pun intended because we're talking about Alistair Thorne. Lots of leadership lessons in this one. John is quickly becoming a lot more likable to the reader and to the other recruits. By the end of this chapter, those things are even more true. Many of the other boys are following his lead now. That's really important. He's turned the tables on the bullies because of it, because other boys are following him and he can use numbers against them. We see him doing various jobs, many of them for people he'll later command, like Bowen Marsh and Alistair Thorne. 
And for those he doesn't later command, like Donald Noy, it's because they die before he becomes Lord Commander. Specifically, in terms of leadership traits here, Alistair thinks he can beat the weakness out of Sam, which is kind of how he handles most leadership questions, just with brutality or just hammering people. But he didn't put much thought into this. Sir Alistair is of House Thorne, who fought on the same side of Robert's Rebellion as House Tarly, the losing side. Lord Tarly is rather famous, known to be an excellent soldier, the wielder of Heartsbane, etc. Surely Alistair Thorne has heard of him, and surely his son Samwell has experienced harsh training before. Alistair doesn't think of that, of course, nor does he take much note that a man with Sam's disposition took the black by quote-unquote choice. If he had thought about it, he'd think, well, yeah, surely this has been tried. Surely famous martial brutal soldier uh, Randall Tarley thought to talk sternly and toughly to his son. This isn't, you know, <laughs> you're not breaking new ground here, Alistair. And John wonders about a lot of this, and it's explained it to, to us as, as he's thinking it through. John and Sam have a lot in common. More than you might think. John's bravery and Sam's cowardice are sort of a opposites attract kind of situation, a protector and a person who needs protecting. But later we see that Sam actually has a lot to offer of his own. He's not just a guy who needs protecting. He, but without that, it's hard for that, those parts of his personality to, to emerge. These complementary skills and different personalities mask how much they have in common, though. Uh, they both lived in a household where the head of that household one of the head were divided on them. Sam's household was as if Kat and Ned were reversed, minus the secret identity part. Rob and Bran and Rickon were his father's sons, and he loved them still. Yet John knew that he had never truly been one of them. Catelyn Stark had seen to that. Now, Sam had been one of them in terms of one of his family, but he was never part of the so-called man's world of all that. His father tried to make that happen. It didn't click. He went off. He would rather go off and, and sing and uh, hang out with his sisters instead. And of course, so to be clear, I'm not comparing that to directly to what happened to John. Sam's treatment's far, far worse, but that's in part because of the reversal of the gender roles here. Sam's mother was on his side, which is not as much protection than Ned can give to uh, John. Cat is no Randall Tarley, again, but the scene Sam describes was his father skinning the deer, right? That's the show. That's the scene they gave Tywin in the show to, uh, to Jamie. The dialogue is pretty different, but there's still this kind of like, a really overbearing father uh, you showing you why this character is the way they are. John and Sam are both heirs, denied those claims, and sent to the wall. Now, John, of course, didn't know he was an heir, but we still have that in common from our point of view. They're the same age, born in 283, and Horn Hill is one of the closest castles to the Tower of Joy, you know, as far as geographical locations. Not that I think that's specifically relevant. It's just kind of a neat little detail. I don't think Horn Hill or House Tarly has anything to do with the Tower of Joy mystery. Let me be clear on that. But just it's neat to note that they were born pretty close to each other in both time and location. So there's a very cool stuff there. There may even be other connections between John and Sam that I missed. Y'all can uh, fill, uh, fill in those gaps for me if you uh, are so inclined. Let's talk about some other stuff that's going on in John's early uh, arc here. That afternoon, the watch commander sent him to the winch cage with four barrels of fresh crushed stone to scatter gravel over the icy footpaths atop the wall. It was lonely and boring work, even with ghosts along for company. But John found he did not mind. 
on a clear day, you could see half the world from atop the wall, and the air was always cold and bracing. So that line, it was lonely and boring work, even with ghosts along for company, but John found he did not mind. That casts my mind directly to the end of his arc that we saw in the show. Him going off to just be alone, be away from the troubles of the world, not minding being lonely, especially if he has, if he has ghosts with him. That's how his story ends. So, whew, this all, by the way, is a stark, yes, pun intended, contrast to how cold he felt before. His, or his first chapter of The Wall, he's talking about how cold it was all the time. But now he's not only getting more comfortable with being alone, he's finding, finding he likes it. The cold is hardly mentioned anymore. This may even foreshadow, uh, you know, all that simple life stuff at the end. Speaking of John growing up and changing, there's this other line of note here. John cherished the rare afternoons when he was sent out with ghosts ranging at his side to bring back game for the Lord Commander's table. Ah, mm, I wonder if there's any uh, dragony stuff. I'm not dragony stuff, but skin changing, manifesting just a little bit, going out ranging with ghosts, hunting with ghosts. That's when that stuff might be most prominent. You know, when they're using, Ghost is using all his senses and they're really trying to be aware of what's happening around in the woods. Yeah, feels like that could be uh, something. But Mm -hmm. there's more, of course, some more foreshadowing and clues here. The old bear had sent out rangers in search of him. This is Benjen we're referring to. Sir Jeremy Riker had led two sweeps and Corrin Halfhand had gone forth from the Shadow Tower, but they'd found nothing aside from a few blazes in the trees that his uncle had left to mark his way. In the stony highlands to the northwest, the mark stopped abruptly, and all trace of Ben Stark vanished. That's definitely a detail I forgot that we had sort of a directional indication to what part of the country he vanished into, the stony highlands to the northwest. Totally forgot about that. I remembered the that he'd left marks um, and that they had suddenly vanished, um, that the, the trail vanishes. So, yeah, little clues there. And of course, the rangers who come back as whites, some of them that were in his party, those are well out of sight for now as well. Think about that. Whoever disappeared with Ben, there's no sign of them either until they show up when John is giving his vows. So that's very suspicious because, you know, those bodies weren't found until they were deposited really close to the wall. Regarding John being king, his dream amongst the stone kings is a clear hint. This bit here may be the crux of it. I scream that I'm not a Stark, that this isn't my place, but it's no good. I have to go anyway. So I start down, feeling the walls as I descend with no torch to light the way. It gets darker and darker until I want to scream. Yeah, the crown of the North would be his because he's a Stark. But he's not, even if Rob names him the heir. So that's kind of what the dream is telling us there. He's, I have to go anyway, because, well, if he's named king in the north and everyone thinks he's a Stark, that's kind of what that means. I have to go anyway, even though I'm not a Stark. This isn't my place. And he's, because, of course, he's actually a Targaryen, if what we think we know is accurate. So, yeah, the Crypts of the Winter, Crypts of Winterfell aren't the place for Targaryen re- to I, rest. It, it just bothers me still. I'm like, he is a Stark. Yeah, like, he, I mean, he has the blood. He is half Stark, and he grew up there. Like, he is, like, he he betrays so many more Stark traits than he does a Targaryen. Absolutely. So, like, that's where, like, I, I, it, I don't disagree with that interpretation, but it still bothers me that it would ultimately be the case maybe in the books they will show him 
embracing some more of his targness and it'll it'll make more sense to me yeah maybe maybe once he gets a dragon and so yeah. i still think he'll end once up he actually bonds with a dragon instead of just yeah. riding a dragon but i do think he ends up embracing his stark heritage that's yeah, the, the, you yeah. know, the nurture that's that's what you know how he was raised and all that i think that's yeah i think we all agree on that but you're right this it's it feels a little off but because he is just as much dark as targaryen it's the rules of of you know, men's names come first. That that's the only yeah. difference here. It's not like that. It's not like that law means his genetics make him more Targaryen. He's mm-hmm. still half and half. Um, but and of course, this is so well hidden because John isn't thinking about. Oh, I'm actually a Targaryen. No, he's thinking that he's a Snow. That's obviously what's going on in his head. So it's a wonderful mess of different meanings here. And it's also uh. Re- ties into what we if the show is accurate how he's going to feel about being king not just of the north but king on the iron throne he doesn't want it <laughs> he doesn't want it at all this is exactly what he's dreaming i have to go anyway feeling the walls i descend i don't want it this isn't my place ghost is again his comfort though and that's again a great clue backed up by what the show reveals is ghost being kind of his refuge kind of his place for ending things and this uh, other line here as well, I want to point out, is very noteworthy. One of the ones that near the end of the chapter. I never saw snow until last month. We were crossing the Barrowlands, me and the men my father sent to see me north, and this white stuff began to fall like a soft rain. At first, I thought it was so beautiful, like feathers drifting from the sky, but it kept on and on and on until I was frozen to the bone. The men had crusts of snow in their beards and more on their shoulders, and still it kept coming. I was afraid it would never end. John smiled. Yeah, John smiling is the real incongruous <laughs> part there because he's just laughing at a southerner adjusting to the snow. But the idea of, of, of Sam, I was afraid it would never end, it just certainly makes us think of, of the long night and, and the snow getting way, way worse. John won't be smiling then. On the human side of things, like I said at the beginning, John is becoming a leader here. It's it's great to see that. It's like I said, all it's like like we see with Sansa and with Bran. All these characters are becoming leaders. They're learning their and Danny. They're learning their leadership traits, and we're seeing them do mostly good with it. On the other hand, the way he uses fear on Rast is not. Uh, it's effective for sure. It it works. He, Sam, Rast does not attack Sam again, but it's also not the best way to lead you know it's it engenders hate someone like rast is going to be thinking of getting revenge although rast does not get revenge <laughs> a fen does for him as they say in the books in the show it's ghost but uh eh, whatever <laughs> we like the book version some notes from uh, joe buckley here good stuff he points out that john doesn't recognize sam's sigil which is a nice comparison to the difference is an upbringing between him and Sansa, who recognizes like all the sigils. Even Podrick Payne in A Storm of Swords recognizes all the Dornish sigils, which is, you know, kind of a little uh, nod to the type of education the full the Trueborns get versus the uh, the bastards. Yeah, you know I mean? wonder. I assume they all get it. I wonder if there's a certain, you know, if if certain sons and daughters are more likely to certain families have more i don't know sansa um, may have just also just kept, wanted to learn wanted these to more but also maybe john Whereas, didn't maybe john was like i don't care about that 
Whereas I feel like Podrick Payne living in the Westerlands, for him to be much familiar with the Dornish houses speaks to him really learning it. Yeah. Like they're not a very big house. And all the, I don't know. Anyway, it points to maybe a, a lot of noble children knowing a lot about it. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. Uh, having a chapter about, about being a craven that involves Darian is, is, is a little ironic. Uh, Darian's one of the ones who points out Sam's cowardice, but Darian's the one who uh, deserts the Night's Watch and Bravos only to have justice dealt out to him by Arya. Yeah, ugh, Darian. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Darian turns out to be as bad or worse than Marillion. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's very no. infuriating, frustrating. Yes. yes, even though he has such a nice voice. Honey poured over thunder, but used <laughs> for the wrong things. <laughs> uh, let's do some John 4 Q&A here. Pip's skills at mummery are impressive. It reminds me a bit of Varus and the scenes in Bravos with Arya. You wonder if, kind of doubt that's ever going to matter, but I, I like seeing it. It just shows us that uh, these things are possible, you know, reminds us of, of how these things can be used. And uh, I like this line here that uh, George writes about the, the wall. The wall loomed before them, glimmering palely in the light of the half moon. And by like it, I mean, that's a weird phrase. Palely? Glimmering palely? That's good said right there. That is good said. <laughs> well, well, good. Also, all this talk of brothers reminds me of a quirk. John's brothers and sisters are actually his cousins. His aunt is actually his mother. His father is actually his uncle. But his uncle is actually still his uncle. Benjamin is the one familial relation he has that remains the same after everything comes forward with his real parentage. So that's kind of neat. Um, but, of course, Benjamin may not be around much for and, him to and, and discuss Brand- that with. And Brandon and Rickard. Oh, That's true. Oh. <laughs> Excellent comment by Laura Boros, Lady of Infinity. John defending Sam is reminiscent of his mom, Leanna, standing up for Howland Reed. Just that kind. Of, he's just that kind of guy. That's cool. Yeah. Also, I point out, uh, happy birthday, Laura. Oh, yeah. Happy birthday, Laura Boros. And shout out to all of our History of Westeros Facebook mods. Definitely uh, great discussions happening on Facebook about these chapters every week. And Laura is a big part of that. So is Nina Friel, whose comment here is also comparable to Arya, who doesn't recognize Northern Sigils at Harrenhal. Ah, Arya maybe. Okay, so Arya did get that education and she seems like someone who just wouldn't care. Yeah, like I, I could see her being taught it. And maybe she wasn't taught it all because you have to be interested, but I could see her being t- taught it and just slacking off like she does with. And she hasn't know, been taught it as many years as, you know. As yeah, that's also a good point. She's younger, but yeah. still. Yeah. Min Forever says, well, Payne was especially taught by Tyrion in expectancy of the visit. Was he? I, I thought he just knew him. Tyrion was proud of him. I wasn't I don't remember sure either. That. And then Nina said, wasn't Podrick specifically studying the Dornish sigils? I don't remember exactly myself, so I decided to put it in here so anyone else could chime in. Okay. Yeah. Oh, and here, here's a quote from Arya that Nina grabbed as well. Whenever Septimore Dane had gone on about the history of this house and that house, she was inclined to drift and dream and wonder when the lesson would be done. Oh, yeah, she never. Paid there attention. it is. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Well, I there guess we will uh, get to that. Yet another little detail George did supply us. He did cover that base. Very nice. Very nice. Okay, let's go to Edard Six. The gang meets Gendry. Ned deals with the tournament, the crowds, a ponderous tome. Ned, of course, hates dealing with tournaments. The tournament of Hall is probably, uh, not for a lot of reasons, but he has bad memories of the tournament of Hall, uh, as well as other things. So, you know, it just doesn't uh, put him in a good stage of mind. 
ponderous tome, like I said. Renly is there, none of which he particularly likes any of the stuff. He doesn't really like Renly. He doesn't really like the ponderous tome, the crowds, the tournament. But he meets Tabho Mott, Master Armor, who he does like, and Gendry, who he also likes. And I like the reason he likes Tabho Mott. This is a really human connection here. The Master Armorer finds himself in the same predicament as Ned himself, protecting a royal-blooded boy through no, you know, he didn't set out to be this boy's guardian, just like Ned didn't set out to be John's guardian. And in both cases, the boy is innocent and unaware of his heritage. And in both cases, though, Tab Hamad is a much lower station than Ned. In both cases, the people that want to kill this boy are more powerful than their protector. Yeah, Ned's a high lord, hand of the king, but Robert's more powerful than he is. Robert's power structure is more powerful than Ned. And of course, Tab Hamad being just an armorer, there's plenty of people more powerful than him. And the reason that Ned likes Gendry is how much he reminds him of Robert. Gendry is about 14 years old, an age that he and Robert wax nostalgic about very recently, and an age that Ned was somewhat happy. It was maybe the only time in his life that he had relative happiness. And of course, as I said a little while back, we're about at the stage where nearly everything starts reminding Ned of the past. He's living in the past as much as he's trying to live in the present, but he can't help be reminded of some of these things. And of course, in this case, you have, well, this boy was born not long after Robert's rebellion. So how are you not going to think of that? A little other detail, just passing through the streets to Tabo Mott's, Beric Dondarrion shows up. There's a lot of uh, this, this cross-pollination uh, polliné- of, of chapters here, something that we, we lose as the narrative spreads to so many other locations. You know, we saw we had... Um, other people take note of Barrack here, and then Sansa, or rather, Ned takes note of Barrack here, and then Sansa's going to take note of Barrack later. We have Catelyn taking note of Jason Malister on the road, only for Sansa to see Jason Malister at the uh, tournament. That sort of close connection isn't going to happen as much as the POV is spread out, so I like to appreciate it while we can. Uh, the bastard theme comes up here in another subtle way before Ned heads to the armor. Renly shows Ned a locket of Marjorie kind of wanting him to confirm for her that she looks like Liana, but she does not. <laughs> Ned doesn't think a whole lot of it, but in this, we see the beginnings of Renly and the Tyrells plotting to replace Cersei with Marjorie. Again, Ned has no idea what's happening, but astute readers do. And this is, a, this is strong evidence that Renly knew about Cersei's children. Given how many other people figured it out, it's not hard to see how Renly could have, especially because he didn't have to figure it out himself. He could have just been told by Olena or any of the Tyrell agents who have been, you know, working on all this, trying to figure it out, because they're all working together. They're all plotting together. So whatever Olena knows is probably getting passed on to Renly, as far as the parentage issue. Certainly Olena has secrets from Renly, but this part, they're probably together. on. No, may- maybe. We, the, we just never knew that Olena and Renly are actually best friends, <laughs> tight as thieves. <laughs> And of course, the the best evidence for all here probably is that the fact that they're conspiring to replace Cersei in general. It's not like Marjorie's sons with Robert would have come before Joffrey and Tommen. So they either knew that they could set them aside because they were bastards or they were planning to kill them, which is also possible. But I think it's probably they knew about the bastardy. It may have been both also, but I doubt it was just they planned to murder them being ignorant of the bastardy. The thing I don't understand there is why would they not have made a move already if they had so if they could just be like, look, Cersei is cheating on you with her brother. I have to think 
Robert might believe then that he might have had some weird feelings about things. Maybe they don't want it to go to, maybe they don't want war to break out. They think maybe yeah. that's not, that's chintzy. Yeah, they don't want, they yeah, might they lose. Yeah, they know? don't want Tywin to have to do that. Yeah, that's Yeah, a they point. don't want that to, they, don't, they would rather yeah. just, yeah. If, if, if Tywin just, if, if, if they can sneak Marjorie in there and get a divorce, that's just, yeah. you know, then they can. Then they're I mean, in a better yeah, position to, to replace those bastards. I think to try to kill Cersei in some maybe, way. Maybe, maybe, maybe that was an alternative thing they considered. Kill Cersei and then have it revealed, like, like you know, I don't know. Anyways, yeah, that's Deep, a digression. Yeah, it's it's very it's, it's it's definitely an interesting little conundrum. We'll have to get more into it, I guess, when we get more into the the Tyrell plots. Yeah, later. True that. True that for sure. Uh, so with the the bull here, it's interesting that Tabo mentions that Renly and Loras both have had their armor made here just after this bit of plotting with Renly and Loras involved. So did they see Gendry there or is it just because Tabo is just such a great armor? <laughs> Another thing that it can be both for. Uh, I also want to point out that we, we need to be aware that Gendry in A Song of Ice and Fire should have major differences versus the HBO version since on TV he's a combination of Gendry and Edric Storm. But here he is his own self. Edric Storm is his own self. We also see some of the early groundwork for Valyrian Steel being laid out here. We've seen ice heard of Hartsbane and the cat's paw dagger, and now we have a person capable of reforging it, and indeed he does turn ice into two swords later. And maybe ice will be reforged later? Who knows? Maybe. Tabomat is from Kohor, which Danny just passed in her chapter earlier this episode. And, you know, it's really interesting to think about how much Stannis has mentioned and, and how we didn't know much about him back then, but we know a lot about him now. And it's just thinking about how much impact a character can have by not even being there, which is hard to see when we don't know what Stannis is like. But now you think about, whoa, if Stannis was there, all these things would have been different. It's another example also of Ned not really exercising his power, being shy and kind of humble about being Hand of the King. He's always, he's just nice about it, you know, <laughs> where he could uh, be more like Krieg and Stark. <laughs> and it's interesting too that Renly calls Shireen ugly, which is kind of, well, it's an ugly comment, and it shows a bit of what his real character is, maybe. Uh, maybe. Maybe that he's a little more show. Maybe he's a little more uh, uh, shallow. He's good at hiding who he really is, but maybe it's just, you know, something else. But it's, that's his niece he's talking about. That's kind of, that's kind of mean. <laughs> to, be, to be fair, I think a lot of people would be pretty disturbed by Shireen. Yeah, that's she's true. a very she sweet is... girl, but and like that him saying ugly is... is different than him being like, you know, she's scary or she freaks me out or yeah. any other thing. But like of of the people to say that about, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's interesting to note like how different the Baratheon brothers are and how John and Sam's complementary skills work. You know, kind of end up working well together, even though they're so different from each other. And how the Baratheon brothers could have been, you know really good but not it's hard to really see their styles not clashing though yeah it, you're right that's true also because they just have so much attitude and ego with each other <laughs> there's all that <laughs> okay so a couple of questions here about eddard six uh or rather eddard five i skipped ahead here <laughs> no this is eddard six whoops <laughs> <laughs> see that's why we need these descriptive titles i'm already i'm already getting lost so we uh, on Facebook, there was a discussion of how Fire and Blood gives even more back up to the Baratheon coloring and uh, shows up even, you know, gives it even more history and more backing of how long that's been in place. And uh, a lot of people pointed out how they appreciate the way, even though Ned's uh, 
shyness and humility about using power can be a little frustrating. They, everybody, a lot of people seem to love how he speaks to Jory, how, you know, he kind of treats him as almost an equal, doesn't talk down to him. And you, you know that someone like Tywin wouldn't do that. And on the, you know, Kat is somewhat similar. She treats Sir Roderick, you know, pretty respectfully, although there's a pretty big age gap between those two. It's a different kind of uh, cultural thing there, but still it's uh, something that they both have. Nina brings up a quote um, to settle the thing that we were curious about uh, with the sigils, the herald. Uh, The lad had been making a diligent study of Dornish heraldry at Tyrion's command, but as ever, he was nervous. I can't see. The wind is flapping them. At Tyrion's command. There it is. Okay, good catch by y'all there. Nice. I would wonder if women who host are more likely to be taught and firstborn. Because uh, they have know. to be the like the, lady the, of the house. Yeah. I don't know. That makes talk. a lot of sense. They're taught to be polite. What is and all this? That. Is it from the TV? You keep having like this red flashing light on you, Aziz. A red flashing light on you? Yeah, really? it's like it looks like it's from the TV reflected. Interesting. I've read that. <laughs> it's only happened a few looks times. Looks like I'm, I think I'm being targeted by snipers. It must have had, Aziz has baseball on, by the way, on the TV here. <laughs> Not that he can watch much, no, but I just can't. I can't even. I can, I, can, I can barely squint and see it. Anyways, that was weird. <laughs> uh, okay, so Catelyn 5. Let's go there. The one where she captures Tyrion. Here's the first line. My lady, you ought cover your head, Sir Roderick told her as her, their horses plodded north. You will take a chill. The end at the crossroads makes the first of its many appearances, and Catelyn gets a taste of what it's like to not be looked at as a lady. But it doesn't last long, thanks to Merlion and Tyrion. This chapter has serious vibes linking it to Rhaegar and Lyanna, the Tourney in Harrenhal, and the Blackfire Rebellions. And yeah, I say that even though the Blackfire Rebellions were a seed in George's mind at this idea. Uh, at this time, he hadn't come up with the name Blackfire, but he may have come up with the concept of Black Dragon versus Red Dragon. And I want you to be thinking about that as I describe uh, some of this detail of of. Uh, the history of the house, or uh, the history of House Inn, as I'm calling it, Inn of the Crossroads. For a much fuller history of the Inn, check out Radio Westeros' episode named after it. Six different POV chapters take place here throughout the series. Four of them are in this first book, though. And I'm going to guess we're going to get another, at least one more before the books are done. Maybe more than one. Catelyn recalls the owner, Masha Heddle, and indeed the Heddle family has owned the place since the time of a crippled knight named Sir John Heddle. Before him, the place had held a variety of different names, and at time, the Trident's banks have been close to it because the Trident has moved over time. Uh, that's how rivers work. And in John Heddle's day, it came to be known as the Inn of the Clanking Dragon. That's just one of many names it's had. Before there, uh, before there was even a Damon Blackfire, let alone his house or a rebellion, he hung a black iron dragon sign that made a clanking sound when it blew in the wind. Many years later, we don't know how many, but... When the Blackfire Rebellion did eventually come around, Lord Derry, whose lands are nearby, who was a Targaryen, as in Red Dragon loyalist, he cut the sign down because it annoyed him because of how much it looked like the Blackfire sigil. Years later, the, the sign washed up on the Quiet Isle, rusted red. Now, this story is major evidence for a plot line unspoiled by the show, yay, which is the real virus in the Lyrio plot, the Young Griff plot. The Black Dragon is Damon Blackfire. Being tossed in the water is a nod to them fleeing across the narrow sea. Young Griff's ships have just washed ashore, like the Red Dragon sign did many years later. He's got the Golden Company, and they're calling him the son of Rhaegar, meaning a Targaryen, meaning a Red Dragon. But beneath that rust, he's a Black Dragon, even if he doesn't know it himself. And the metaphor is even more amazing 
when you realize how nicely it fits with beneath the gold, the bitter steel, beneath the rust, the, the red rust, the black dragon, right? And the Golden Company has always supported black dragons, never a red one. And here they are supporting young Griff. So they're probably supporting a black dragon, aren't they? Yeah. One of Sir John Heddle's ancestors, Black Tom Heddle, was at the center of the second Blackfire Rebellion uh, for the Black Dragon. He appears in the Mystery Night and winds up hanged. Uh, winds up hanged, I guess you could say. Stannis would be very, uh, let me make sure I get that right. Instead of the rusted red dragon sign, we have Masha Heddle's teeth, red from Sourleaf, like Black Tom. She too winds up hanged by Tywin. And of the men who ride with Catelyn and Sir Roderick in the Vale after taking Tyrion, three of them are Brackens, the House of Bittersteel. None of them make it to the Vale, though. The thing, at the start of the chapter, she's thinking of how River Run is her next destination, and instead, she goes somewhere entirely different. Before she gets to the inn, she thinks of certain of her father's bannermen, all of whom rise in prominence throughout the story. It's kind of like early world building for the houses that are going to be in the War of the Five Kings on the Riverland side. You've got Blackwood, Bracken, Frey, the Mutons of Maidenpool. And of course, some of these houses behave a little bit the way that they'll behave uh, in the wars. The phrase, Catelyn tries to get the phrase to do something and they just chill. They don't help at all. They just sit there. Excuse me. And uh, when we have Brienne's uh, POV taking us to the Mutons of Maidenpool, we see, uh, you know, what's going on there with Randall Tarley keeping Lord Mooton in a tower cell. And we see Castle Derry, where Lady was executed not long before. And the Wents of Harrenhal are mentioned, whose blood is in all the Stark kids because Kat's mother is Lady Manissa Went. They all have that bat blood. Earlier mention of the Quiet Isle puts me in the mind of Sandor, who, of course, is hiding there and, and has scenes at the end of the crossroads later. He's feeling guilty for his many sins and how the elder brother... There is, uh, and, and while we're there, rather, the elder brother tells a firsthand story, because he was in war, of what it's like for commoners to be in battles and campaigns and how little they know what they're doing. And that's exactly what we see with some of these soldiers who stand up to follow Cat. Marillion, in particular, not even a soldier. They have no idea what they're getting into. Nor did most of the men in the Blackfire Rebellions or Robert's Rebellion or the War of Five Kings. It's, it's quite a theme, really. But the theme is even more powerful than this. This is, the, in the crossroads, I mean, within the range of where Lyanna and Rhaegar ran off together, more popular told as him kidnapping her, which is a huge part of the theme here. Cat taking kidnapping, or taking kidnapping? Cat taking Tyrion, no matter the reason behind it, helped lead to war, just as Rhaegar and Lyanna's elopement also led to war. When Jorah later says the common people want to be left alone when the High Lords play their Game of Thrones, this chapter reminds me of that, in part because it shows Catelyn incognito, where she experiences the smallest, just smallest, barest taste of what it's like to not be highborn, to not be recognized, to not be given smiles by the innkeeper, to not be, you know, the, the daughter of the Lord Paramount of the kingdom they're all standing in. You know, she's, it's, with, with her mother dead, Catelyn is probably the most powerful woman in the Riverlands, right? And that power has limits. George shows us that in the way that certain people don't follow her, like the phrase, but others do, like the Brackens. And uh, neither Lord Jason Malister nor Masha Heddle recognize her. And so they don't give her that deference that she's used to experiencing. And to her, that's enough. She's like, okay, well, they're not going to recognize us, so... Let's uh, move on. <laughs> Let's, all it took was 
for her was one high lord not recognizing her for her to think that that would be how it went for everybody but that's not quite how it worked i wouldn't call that a mistake on her point a part but it is you know a, a pers- an issue of perspective masha yells how she doesn't want any of this to happen don't do this don't fight don't have your high lords quarrels in my inn and of course she had nothing to do with any of it but well the, high, the commoners suffer when those high lords play their game of thrones and she's hanged by tywin just because this happened in her inn even though she had nothing to do with but that's nothing compared to as much as badly as she suffered. It's nothing compared to what's going to happen throughout the Riverlands. And Tywin, of course, is the main reason for all that, too. A reaction from him is predictable. You know, that the fact that Catelyn takes Tyrion, it's, it's, it makes sense that Tywin would do something. His, his, his reputation is pretty well known. I'm not sure it was predictable that he would go this far, that he would just torch the whole Riverlands, just get go mad with it. But... Maybe it was predictable. I'm not, a, I'm not entirely sure. It depends on Kat's perspective, what she knows about Tywin. You know, his reputation is what it is, but what she knows about him personally is maybe a little different. But Masha's relatives reopened the place later as an orphanage that has ties to the Brotherhood Without Banners, a group very hostile to House Lannister and House Frey. So this story is not done. The heddles are still in play. The lucky man here, I suppose you could say, in the short term at least, his little finger, his lies are working out way better than he could have fought, probably. I mean, they really worked out amazingly. Not only did he get these major houses that he said there's throats, but Catelyn seizes Tyrion on this false information and runs to take refuge with her sister, the person who's already plotted against her because of Littlefinger. So, geez, man. <laughs> and of course, the road to the Vale isn't exactly safe either. That's, that's, uh, part of the danger she finds herself in because of this uh this decision <sighs> yeah big deal so as far as uh lisa and and river and uh family something we pointed out before is how she kind of doesn't have a good read on her sister at this point she is also maybe thinking about her family a lot because of how war is going to break out she may also be thinking of warning her sister it's not just that she wants to take Tyrion there to face justice and to avoid tywin's uh response but because of what ned had told her that war is not unlikely at this point and if that's going to happen she sort of feels a duty not only to warn uh lysa but to warn river run which was what her original intent was before she ran into Tyrion there let's take a few questions from catlin doesn't look like actually doesn't look like we have any questions for cat five so we can skip that apparently everyone thinks this is an incredibly boring chapter (laughs) I don't know. There's very little here. I think the undertones are really powerful, but the the basics are pretty straightforward. You know, it doesn't have a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of, it's pretty, yeah, I guess it's just that. It's straightforward. Catelyn sees his Tyrion. There's some cleverness. There's some good writing. Oh, wow. That really sheds light on something else later that, you know, they never would have gotten until retrospect. Yeah. And I think a lot of people maybe weren't as as tapped into some of this Blackfire stuff and and how it ties into also the, the War of the Five Kings, but. Well, we covered that pretty thoroughly, so yeah. I guess there wouldn't necessarily be questions about yeah. that. All right, then. Well, the last chapter of this session is Sansa 2. The gang goes jousting, a.k.a. the gang goes to a tournament, a.k.a. Uh, the one with Sandor's origin story. Several of the characters we saw in the peripheral of other characters, or sorry, in peripheral of other chapters are engaged in a small bit of action here. A lot of them we saw you know, scattered about, and they all kind of converge here. And it's a warm-up for real war later with a few seminal character moments. 
It's very notable that this chapter follows cats because the two are really linked thematically in so many ways. They're, they work really well together. As Cat is seizing Tyrion as a nod to Rhaegar seizing Lyanna, just after the turning of Harrenhal, this is the tourney following a kidnapping instead of before it. So we got these really strong uh, R plus L equals J, Jon Snow vibes going on here. Sansa is, of course, in my opinion, a perfect point of view for this tournament. Most of the house, not only do we just, from what we discussed about her being very aware of who all the houses are, but most of the houses are still fairly new to the reader. Like, you just heard a lot of these names, but at this point, the reader's like, wait, who is all, who are all these houses? And her wonder at the splendor and newness of it all, the epicness of it all, it's like a shared experience for the reader. Um, you know, but of course, some of it isn't entirely new. Like I said, we just saw the phrase at the end of the crossroads and Catelyn, like I said, passed the Malisters on the road. Ned saw Beric Dondarrion. Etc. Sansa oh. rode to the hands tourney with Septa Mordain and Jane Poole in a litter with curtains of yellow silk so fine she could see right through them. That is a wonderful analogy. Earlier scene when she rides in the wheelhouse, Arya points out that she, you can't see the world around you when you're in the wheelhouse because the curtains are thick. You just All you can see is the inside of the wheelhouse. Now we have of uh, the coverings of the wheelhouse, you can see through them. So the veil is still there. There's still, she still has a veil over her eyes, so to speak, but it's, it's, uh, it's thinner. So she's starting to see the world as it is. And this is, speaks to what's happening in a tournament. For her, this is just this grand, glorious event. But tournaments can be pretty serious. People die, which she sees, and we see here. And so many lords and ladies in one place is, that's where conspiracies form. And ahem, Love affairs that result in, well, you know, that story, The Night of the Laughing Tree. The kind of love story isn't the one Santa has thought much about yet, though. Santa's thinking about the, like, princes and princesses, not these princes and princes eloping and causing wars and all that. <laughs> That's a whole different thing. And we get to see just how extremely creepy Littlefinger is. He walks up and runs his thumb along her jawline. She's 12, man. What the heck? That is so creepy. And Septimore Dane just, she doesn't do anything. She's just... She just is like, oh, I'm so happy to, you know, that you're here talking to us, Lord Littlefinger. It's, it's ugh, creepy. Now, here's a quote that a lot of people pointed to that's just beautifully written and full of unspecific, but maybe dark foreshadowing. His armor was shiny new. A bright streak of fire ran down his outstretched arm as the steel caught the light. Then the sun went behind a cloud and it was gone. His cloak was blue the color of the sky on a clear summer's day, trimmed with a border of crescent moons. But as his blood seeped into it, the cloth darkened and the moons turned red one by one. That's like blood moonish. You've got the, the cloth darkening, everything turning one color. You've got maybe some of that sign of that desolation. You've got the, the sky being blocked out. Streak of fire. Streak of fire. Woof. That is, that's powerful. And it's, it's, it's attached to this, just, just completely unimportant character, Sir Hugh, who's made, who's not even as important as he seems to be. Like this scene makes us think that Gregor killed him because he knew something, but as we find out later, it's not at all. Sir Hugh didn't really know hardly anything, and Gregor just killed him because Gregor likes killing, and he saw the opportunity to do so. So it, it turns out to be very little, but George makes it into something by attaching this crazy foreshadowing and this, this amazing writing to it. We also have this really what turns into a rare moment of humanization for Joffrey is he seems embarrassed by his father. And like a lot of kids, he idolizes his dad. And so it's kind of sad that Robert's not a good father. Uh, 
not actually his father, but still Robert didn't raise him. Robert thinks Joff is his son and he still doesn't do a good job. So it's, it's kind of sad, but Joff throws away. doesn't Joff doesn't get much uh, sympathy because of his general behavior. He channels Viserys a bit when he talks about beating everyone in this tournament when he's older, which is interesting because yeah, Joffrey is, he's no Viserys, but they do have some things in common. And I think we're meant to see that here. Sansa mostly forgives Joffrey, mostly blaming Cersei for the execution of Lady, which, yeah, I mean, that's fair. Joffrey didn't actually call for Lady's execution. He didn't argue against it. But blaming Cersei is fair. I mean, she was the main reason. She's the main reason Lady is dead. But Sansa also blames Arya, which is not fair. But, you know, she's still learning. She's only 12. That the Hound's origin story is paired with all this knighthood and chivalry is... Well, that's just perfect, isn't it? It's just this wonderful dichotomy. I've used the word dichotomy so many times today. <laughs> but hey, it fits. I also like that. But dis- it's the dichotomy between thinking that word is overused <laughs> and loving the sound of that word. <laughs> I need a synonym, though, for real. <laughs> I also like that despite how much uh, Sandor is put off by Sansa's like overly uh, rehearsed mannerisms, she wins him over maybe because behind that rever- uh, those rehearsed mannerisms, there's some, some realness to it, some real empathy, some real compassion. And this might be the moment that first-time readers start taking her seriously. I think it's kind of a turn for her because to me, it's like one of her most admirable, admirable, one of her most admirable talents emerges here. It's her, she's afraid, but then her fear vanishes as she feels compassion. It's like her compassion for him is stronger than her terror in just the fact that he's a terrifying man. The fact that she feels bad for his trauma and his justifiable hatred of knighthood is a really powerful emotion. And it's something that I love about Sansa. And I think it's something that draws a lot of people to her as a character. And she says, Before I read this quote, you said you wished you had some synonyms for dichotomy. Well, here are some options for you, Aziz. Okay. Division. Separation, Separation. divorce, divorce, I know, split, gulf, chasm, difference, contrast, disjunction, polarity, lack of consistency, contradiction, (laughs) antagonism, conflict, and then this is my favorite, contrariety. Contrariety. Yeah, that's like palely or little finger fingered. (laughs) All of those (laughs) are are synonyms for division or contrast between two things that are that are represented as being opposed or entirely different. Okay. So maybe some of those will sink in. I just had to take a quick sidebar to share that because I immediately Googled it. (laughs) Nice. Contrariety. That was way more synonyms than I would have expected. A lot of them, I'm like, I some of them don't work that well. No, they don't work very well. But a couple of them were like inconsistency. Isn't yeah? That's not one. That's not. Yeah, no. In fact, it's quite consistent. Very intentional. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, let's move Uh, on. So Sansa says he was no true knight. So that's a severe understatement, but it it cuts to the chase. And from a girl her age and the way she delivers it, she puts her arm on his shoulder and while she's terrified and Sandor is probably not used to that at all. Like someone being like, Hey Sandor, how you feeling buddy? Putting his hand on her. uh, No one walks up to him and does that. Right? Like no one's even tall enough to do that. (laughs) It's only because he's like kneeling down. He's surprised. He's a bit put off by it. Cause like I said, up to this point, he just sees her as this, Oh, you're just, you know, a pretty little bird singing the things they taught you. And he's not wrong, but she breaks out of that a little bit and it, it surprises him and he doesn't admit it, but it seems like he respects her a little for it. And there's more to it on his side as well. We've learned by this chapter through Ned's memories. I believe it's Ned's memories 
that there was a Clegane sister who Gregor may have killed, which if Sansa reminds uh, if Sansa reminds him of her, then, well, he's going to feel that very deeply as well. In Brand 1, we pointed out how he listened and watched and considered leadership qualities rather than rushing to judge, kind of gathers all the information. And this is Sansa kind of doing the same here. She's a queen with a strong sense of empathy, the, the exact opposite of Cersei in that regard, right? More to come when Sansa and Cersei start interacting regularly, but uh, just, you know, for now, I want to start that, that uh, discussion to, to lay the groundwork. Uh, that thin veil that we refer to covering the wheelhouse, it's going to eventually become just a few threads and eventually nothing. It's not long before Sansa is seeing these Tyrell cousins and thinking about how they're these sweet summer children, almost like the way old man thinks. But uh, this is also familiar writing territory for George R. R. Martin, who wrote for the TV show Beauty and the Beast before he wrote A Song of Ice and Fire, uh, which is yet another reason to suspect that Sansa and Sandor may meet again, not necessarily romantically, but there's some evidence that there are, their arcs will come, again, come together again. And this here quote is more evidence for that. Yeah, this is from a few chapters ago. A dire wolf is a savage beast. Sooner or later, sooner or later, it would have turned on your girl the same way the other did on my son. Get her a dog. She'll be happier for mm. it. And then Joffrey yells dog when summoning him to walk Sansa back to her apartments. And I also like that Joffrey serves her a queen's portion off of the roast joint they're eating. And uh, speaking of queens, there's some interesting Cersei description here. That is very peculiar. The queen's face was a mask, so blo- so bloodless that it might have been sculpted from snow. Now, contrast that line to John 1, the banquet at Winterfell, another time when Cersei is embarrassed by Robert. That's the same thing happening here. And in that scene, John thinks... Beside him, the queen seemed as cold as an ice sculpture. Huh, so we got sculpted from snow and an ice sculpture. That's very distinct. I mean, that is... You can't get past that without wondering. Uh, is this foreshadowing for Cersei becoming undead? Maybe George had some plans for that in the original 1983 outline. Not that it doesn't show up in there as that. So I don't know. Or is it true foreshadowing? Perhaps she does get turned into the undead. Maybe she's a Night Queen type figure. It's entirely possible. It's hard to see how she could get to that point. But hey, George is, uh, well, he's good at that sort of thing. But perhaps it's an emotional state. Uh, you know, after her children are all dead, you know, maybe after, you know, let's look at how it happened on TV, just for a basic general idea. She screamed for Joffrey, wept for Marcella, but went cold for Tom. And by the time her third kid was dead, she was just a different person. And maybe that's what we're seeing here, how she's gradually going to become emotionless because of uh, all the pain. She's all this trauma of losing her children. And indeed, there's, there's a, a line that speaks to that. Sansa considers her own lack of tears for Sir Hugh and how she looks down on Jane for her lack of composure. It's interesting. She ought to be crying too, she thought, but the tears would not come. Perhaps she had used up all her tears for Lady and Bran. She thinks that she should be crying. It's like a responsibility that she thinks she has. It's not like, normally this would make me cry. It's not like she's like realizing that she's a little more mature. It's she's wondering where her normal emotions are. She's it's, it's different for her. This is her expectation has changed. This is like, so, I would normally not behave like this question is later on. Do we, uh, when she finds out about Rob and Catelyn, do we have a quote where she cries? 
I, a question. Yeah, she me. definitely does. She definitely it's, does. It's a lot of it's through Tyrion's point of view yeah. that he sees her uh, red eyes and that she's trying to hide it, but yeah, it's clear okay. that she's, so been, she's been suffering. Crying, badly. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, so that's the thing that's really huge. It's a big part of of her empathy. That's a growing point here, and I think that's uh, like John in her John's third chapter. This is Sansa's second, but John's third chapter. Once he starts to be a leader and starts to not be, you know, a privileged kid, it, he's like this is a great kid. And Sansa, to me, this is that same moment for her where she starts to, she's not leading a bunch of people like John is, but she kind of takes charge in a sense over at least part of the scene with Sandor. You know, he's still kind of like looming over her and the violence is, is uh, implicitly possible, but she takes over like the emotion, takes the emotional lead in the scene really powerfully. I love it. Uh, also, of importance are a lot of the characters she sees in the, the tournament. Uh, of course, in Bran's dreams, the Hound, the Mountain, and Jamie are three of the four figures that Bran sees, and those are three of the final four. The other one is Loras. And if we think of those ones, well, none of them are in good shape. Now the Mountain's undead. The Hound is, uh, you know, his leg is messed up, and he's, you know, all full of guilt. Jamie lost his hand, is trapped by Stoneheart. Loras either has burns all over his body and several other injuries, and unless that's a lie, but I, I'm guessing it's not, but it, it might be. Barris and Selmy's in, mentioned in the tournament as well. He's about to fight in the Battle of Fire. Who knows how that's going to go for him. So I wrote a section here that I thought maybe we would cut, and I'm, and I'm going to cut it, but I'm going to record it separately and put it up as a patrons-only bonus content. I did a, a nice uh, page or two on where are they now, all the people mentioned in the tournament, and where they went, what's, what their, where their current status is. There's seven Freys, there's Jason Malster, some, there's some Kingsguard, there's Royces, there's Marin Trant, there's Karens, there's Redwines, there's a bunch of characters mentioned, a bunch of Winterfell people. So I'll record that separately and release that as a bonus for y'all. Anyone who's a patron will get access to that. Um, but since we're already past five o'clock, I don't want to, that's too much time for us to, to spend on that. So a couple more things about Sansa and check that out later if you get the chance. Uh, Whoops, lost my place. Is this connects, like I said, this connects really well with the previous chapter. Cat uh, showing off her knowledge of all these families and loyalties and sigils. And Catelyn really, you know, shows how much she is like her mother uh, and is uh, has all the same knowledge and is, is happy to have this knowledge. You know, we did at least get a little bit of, of talking about Lady. It didn't deal with it directly. Um, she thinks about how that was in the past, but that's uh, it's still we showed you how it still managed to hit pretty hard, even though it was only just a one-liner and how it ties into other things happening. Uh, the tournament, it's interesting to think about how we all have so much entertainment in our lives. We can, we have TV, we have internet, we have so many things. This is just a huge thing. Just like Ned doesn't like it, but other counselors tell him how big a deal it is to the commoners. And that's an example of no, the noble detachment from the lives of commoners, something that Cat we see with Cat's chapter, we see a little bit with Ned here and there. They're just, it's not a negative about them. It's just the way the society works. I mean, it's not a good thing either, but they were raised this way. They weren't taught to think about these things that much. They do sometimes, but it's not kind of their natural uh, way of thinking because it wasn't, it's not how nobles tend to think. You got characters like Ed Muir that care more about the commoners, but that's pretty rare. Uh, Bran seems to be someone like that. So hopefully that's uh, where we're headed with that. Um, Gregor, Gregor's uh, time in this tournament gives us a lot of bit about um, the links to the past, talking about Robert's Rebellion. 
We have the Royces reminding us about the prologue um, and the later moments with them, which I'll describe in the uh, Where Are They Now piece. We also have Thoros appearing. We have uh, several of, we have Angai the Archer, just a lot of interesting characters who you can see why I don't have time to go through all of them in this episode. It's kind of its own thing. But uh, even Septim Mordain gets extra characterization here. Not necessarily good characterization, but it's it's all over the place. So I think it's really great. I love the scene. And uh, like I said at the beginning, Sansa, perfect POV for this one. A lot of people pointed out the uh, that quote that I read earlier, or that rather that Ashea read earlier about Sir Hugh's death and how people thought of the Blood Moon uh, working title for the prequel show that's coming out because his moons were slowly darkening. And the people were wondering, well, I had a thought. George said that, you know, sometimes some of these ideas for TV shows and and things like that came from single lines in his books. And, and a lot of us thought that he was referring to the world of ice and fire because it's world building stuff. But maybe this is one of those lines. Maybe it's it's possible that that line is where this blood moon idea comes from. Again, I, it's a working title yeah. and it's kind of a stretch because there's, yeah. there's almost no way that it was thought of this early, but I very maybe. much doubt that blood moon was taken from this description of a cloak. Yeah. I have to say that I doubt that, but that the imagery of blood moons is something that happens throughout the series. Yes. And so them take they would take it from that not from this one particular quote i just i had to give my own disclaimer because it's so ludicrous the idea of some writer coming across this cloak and being like yes this is the thesis of my tale <laughs> another good note from joe buckley here is that we he pointed out earlier the note of renly and beauty and talking about shireen well renly fights sandor and uh, in this duel in the in the tournament and uh Sandor wins pretty handily and uh it's another sign that of what Sandor was saying that you know the knights and the oils and all the blessings and all that that's just dressing the the real truth is brutal and ugly and uh well ugly beat shiny and uh popular in this one <laughs> and indeed as we know he's the one who eventually wins the tournament <laughs> and this is kind of a kind of a metaphor there for ugly brutality winning out in the end even beating the even beating the the kid who's amazing and cheated a little <laughs> you know even the like noble kid loris uh who's amazing at this thing he, he cheated against gregor a bit even that wasn't enough to win so very cool love this chapter love this batch of chapters and i'm excited for the next set so let's talk a little let's do a little outro here talk about what's coming up next and say adios till next time as always, check out the Isle of Faces. That's Joe Buckley's podcast for the Scraps and Strolls edition, which is where he covers. Can I just say you said straps? You Did said, I really? You said, I, maybe you said scraps, but you definitely said strolls. Strolls. I scraps wish you and said, strolls. I wish you said that. I think you said scraps and strolls, <laughs> but funny. it's scraps and scrolls. Scraps and scrolls. Yeah, the Isle of not, Faces Not podcast. to be confused with with scraps and scrolls, like <laughs> scrolls. <laughs> so... Yeah, there's additional discussion of all these chapters will be put on uh, Joe's podcast. That's Isle of Faces once again. So check that out if you didn't yet enough. Highly recommend it. Unfortunately, next week is another off week for us. We apologize for having uh, I say, several off weeks. I, I would say fortunately. So 
fortunately. Because we get to see a bunch of people in person. Yeah, a lot, lot of you guys will see in person. That's true. Yeah. That's, that's, that's very awesome. We'll unfortunately be for most of you, but fortunately for a small portion in us. <laughs> <laughs> and we're back on July 21st for four in a row without interruption. Then we'll be off for two weeks. And then we'll have, I don't know how many in a row without interruption, but... Basically, April to August, late August, is kind of what we call con season. It's when there's lots of conventions. Uh, lot, you know, for us, that's their, their work-related. We need to go, and it's, it's important for us to go to spread the word about the podcast and to, you know, do our job. But uh, I thought we starting, were in have... late, starting in mid, early September, there's basically nothing yeah. until April again. Yeah, I thought we would have three off in a row, the 18th, 25th, and 1st. No. Okay. We're doing the 1st. Okay. Yeah, I, I, we, we talked about that before. Okay. Um, so here's the here's what we'll be doing that time. Eddard 7. The gang finishes the tourney, a.k.a. the one where Varus tells Ned the Lannisters are going to kill Robert, a.k.a. the one less breastplate stretcher. Tyrion 4. The gang fights Bale Klansman. Arya 3. The one where Arya hunts cats and overhears Varus and Viridian. Eddard 8. The gang argues over killing Danny, a.k.a. the one where Ned quits being hand. Catelyn 6. The gang goes up the mountain, a.k.a. the one where the, they ride mules at night. Eddard 9, yes, we'll have three Neddy chapters next time. This is the one where he faces Jamie in the street, a.k.a. the one where Ned breaks his leg. And these last two, second and third of the Ned chapters, are where it really starts to be just constant. Everything that happens reminds Ned of the Tower of Joy. Note how many people are fighting in the street. Note how many people die afterwards. Note the language used. Note him cradling Jory like he cradled uh, how, um, Liana. Note how Robert actually says... Uh, well, no, that's this a chapter later. Robert will eventually say something just like the Tower of That's That's Eddard uh, 10, I think. Anyway, also, last but not least, Daenerys 4, which is the gang arrives in base Dothrak, a.k.a. the one where Danny smashes Viserys in his stupid face. <laughs> so, we'll see you all at the beginning of, uh, or la- rather, July 21st for this batch. Until then... Bella reread us and we say some thanks. Thanks to all the patrons who make this possible. As you guys know, we don't do patron shoutouts in this episode in these episodes because they are too long. But patron shoutouts do occur in our and, and monthly live streams. And because they're geared towards our patrons. They are, yeah. <laughs> and uh, we will be reading those as well in the scripted episodes as, uh, coming up. Thanks to Ashea, who is the best for all the great multi-armed uh, work back there. Not such great multi-armed work today, <laughs> I must say. All these quotes keep tripping me up because they'll I'll be trying to look at the document versus I'll be trying to look at the chat versus managing OBS, which involves moving the chapter slides. Yep, and lots with, to do. It's just, yeah. You do a great it's job. It's a new mm-hmm. thing to manage. Yeah, balance. there's some adjustment. Yeah. There's some adjustment doing. Some adjustment doing. Good said. (laughs) And, of course, thanks to Sir Buckley for adding lots of thoughts to this episode, as well as to his own pod. Like I said, check out Scraps and Scrolls on the Isle of Faces podcast. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld for the maps, video intro, and all that goodness he is so well known for. And thanks to Kevin McLeod for the music uh, associated with our Valar Revitas episodes. And that's it, everybody. Valar Revitas. Next time.